Welcome to Anarchitecture, episode 27. 11 spooky fears about short-term rentals. Assuaged! Citizen of Nowhere series, episodes 6 and 7, I talked about how I had quit my job as an architect and spent two years traveling with my family. We spent a few months in Europe, a few months in the Caribbean, and some time moving around the U.S. visiting family in various places. And everywhere we went, we stayed in a short-term home rental. These were apartments or houses we found on sites like Airbnb, HomeAway, and VRBO. One thing we thought was interesting was that some of these places were apartments where it was the owner's primary residence. So in other words, we would be going there to stay for a week or two, and the owner would be moving out and letting us stay in their house during that time. During the course of these travels, all this back and forth between the U.S. and other places abroad, we ended up buying a house here in Maine. So in the midst of our travels, we moved some of our stuff from our home in Boston, which we were keeping as a long-term rental unit. We moved up to our new home and settled in. However, after we had bought the house, we still had travel already planned for the spring. This was in 2017 now. So we were lucky to find a renter who would come and rent our new home here in Maine while we continued our travels. Then when we got back and decided we were finally done traveling, we settled back into our new home. That was when I started my business, Audra Architecture. But we had the house pretty well set up at that point for renters. So we decided that over the summer, we would try renting the house out on Airbnb over a number of weekends uh, through the course of the summer. We spent a lot of weekends in the summer staying at my parents' house, which is just about a half hour north of where we are here in Maine by the beach. So we wanted to see if we could actually get some people to come and stay at our house, see how much money we could make on that and see if it was something that we could handle or if it would just be too much of a hassle to be turning over our house to renters all these weekends during the summer. What we found was that this was actually manageable for us. We were used to living out of suitcases anyway, so we, <laughs> we just kept that going for a little while. And we ended up renting almost every weekend of that summer, uh, renting out our primary residence, our new home here in Maine, on Airbnb. Where we are is right near Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which is a nice little seacoast town, has a lot going on in the summer. There are a lot of weddings around the area. So we found out that we had no problem renting this place and could actually make some decent money over the course of the summer. Yeah, and part of the reason we haven't recorded a podcast in a while is because every weekend Tim seems to be off camping or traveling somewhere. And we're recording this on a Friday morning. Are you renting out your place this weekend? We're not, no. Now that it's September, um, we have the kids back in school. We've tried to settle back down into a regular routine. We do have one more weekend rental coming up, which is a repeat customer that we've rented to the last three years. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we always save this weekend for them. But come September, we get kind of sick of turning the house over and we're ready to just settle back down into a normal fall routine. Plus, this is a really seasonal market. So we haven't tried really renting it over the winter. But from what we've seen of prices in the area, it's not as easy to rent over the winter. So we really just focus on summer rentals, then get our lives back in order come the fall. Yeah. So what's it like actually having to move out of your house effectively every weekend? You guys must have a pretty good system worked out by now. The hardest part is getting set up at the beginning of the summer because over the winter, we've moved all the kids' toys and stuff from we have a playroom in the basement and over the winter, all the stuff ends up back in their room, it seems like. So we, we get all that stuff cleared out. You know, I have my office, my desk set up upstairs where I tend to fill that up with stuff over the course of the year. The kitchen gets progressively less organized over the course of the year. <laughs> 
So as we're getting ready for summer, we do this clean sweep through the house where we're taking a lot of the kids' toys, putting them back down in the basement. I'm getting my whole office picked up so that I, you know, I work off of a laptop, but we have a printer. I have some, some files and things that um, I just get in boxes and stick down in the basement for the course of the summer. Do you have like one room in your house that you lock up and all your valuable stuff goes in there? I'll never tell. We lock the basement so that the renters can't get down into the basement. We do have an emergency key if they need to get to the electrical panel or something like that. That's just in a lockbox. If they tripped a circuit or something, they could let us know and we could give them the code to get into the basement. But otherwise, we keep everything locked up and we don't really have any valuables down here anyways. I I always take my computer with me and and we don't know anything else of value. (laughs) (laughs) So once we do that initial cleanup at the beginning of the summer and get the house all set up, then it's not too bad to get it turned over every weekend. Even things like our clothes, you know, we will just kind of tuck into bins in the back of our closet and just kind of live out of those <laughs> over the course of the summer. We have some hanging racks that we, we can hang like a curtain in front of in the back of the closet so the guests can use the front of the closet and we have stuff stored in the back of the closet. So we don't really have to move all that stuff out. My office, as I said, is pretty mobile. So I just get into a routine of setting that up. And it's actually kind of nice that it it forces us to really keep the house clean over the summer. (laughs) And so I'm cleaning the tub once a week, which, you know, cleaning the tub is awful. But if you do it once a week, it's actually not that bad. (laughs) Just a quick wipe down. So it's nice to be living in this clean, orderly house over the course of the summer, even though we have some minor inconveniences of where we have stuff stored away. Yeah, I think my house is the opposite of that in the summer. In the wintertime, we keep it clean because we got nothing else to do. We're just cooped up inside all the time, so we just <laughs> clean the house. But in the summertime, it's just pure chaos. The kids constantly running in and out and tracking dirt all over the house and leaving toys everywhere. Yep. So the cleanup that you do once a year sounds like the cleanup that we should be doing about once a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the nice thing with the kids in the summer is we can just kick them outside. So they play out there a lot more and we don't have to worry about the big toy mess inside the house. So do you ever get weirded out about having strangers sleeping in your bed every weekend? (laughs) Well, the nice thing about these sites like Airbnb is that, for one thing, everybody has a profile set up on there. So when people are coming to stay at your place, you know something about them and you can communicate with them and ask them questions about who's staying and why they're staying, how many people, all that kind of stuff. And so we have turned people down from time to time, just if it seemed like, for one thing, we have a a limit of only four people to stay in our house. It's a two-bedroom house, and, you know, we don't want these wild parties, so held the limit to four people. As we go along in this episode, there's another reason for that, which I'll explain. So there are some mechanisms for us to vet people who are coming in and renting our home. However, we, we haven't really found cause to turn many people away. And we've definitely had a few renters where when they come in at the beginning of the weekend, we kind of question what the house is going to look like when we get back on Sunday. I think the most memorable one of these was this one weekend, I guess there was some music festival going on in New Hampshire, and these four guys show up. They were like a like a heavy metal rap rock kind of band that were playing at some hardcore music festival in New Hampshire that weekend. And these guys came in and they're like, you know, big dudes, tattoos, piercings, <laughs> you know. You know, at first glance, it was a little off-putting, let's just say. But these guys were, I mean, they were the nicest guys. They had never done Airbnb before. They were used to staying in like crappy motels when they go and do these shows. <laughs> they were so appreciative of having this whole house that they could have for the weekend. Yeah. We always do like, you know, we'll put out cookies or, or sometimes like bagels or little snacks like that in the morning <laughs> for the renters to have. And they thought that was just like the best thing. <laughs> and these guys, and when we came back, the house was spotless. <laughs> they left a CD of the band. 
and they all, you know, sign their names for us of, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> on the CD. How was the music? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was, I, I cannot listen to it with my kids in the car. It is, I mean, just, <laughs> this is the filthiest stuff you'll ever hear. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, not too bad. So that's one thing that's been cool about this whole experience is that we have had these moments where we've been unsure about these strangers coming into our house. And every time, really without fail, we've been impressed by the way that people have treated our home. We've never had complaints from neighbors, anything like that. The people usually have been communicative if they have any, any needs or any issues or any concerns. And it's really been one of these experiences that, you know, kind of gives you a little bit of faith in humanity <laughs> and faith <laughs> in strangers that by and large, people tend to be respectful of other people and of their property. Companies like Airbnb and Uber have been sort of a darling of libertarians for facilitating these decentralized peer-to-peer -peer exchanges where people can make use of any excess capacity they have in the case of Airbnb, that could mean an extra room in your house or some time that you're not at your house that other people can make use of it. And so it's a great market process for fully utilizing existing real capital assets like a home or in the case of Uber, like a car, while at the same time opening up a whole new experience for the customers or in this case the renters at Airbnb. As Tim said, when he was traveling, rather than staying in some chain hotel with 500 other people, he was able to get a much more personalized experience in all these places. Plus, of course, as we, when we were renting homes and apartments, some of these places we were staying for two weeks or maybe even a month. And so by renting a home instead of a hotel room, you had a kitchen we could use. Kids had their own bedrooms. And in some cases, you even had running water. Yes, that, that's true. We, we often had running water. <laughs> Not all of them. Yeah, and when I was traveling a lot with my previous job, it was in the days before Airbnb, and I was a card-carrying member of every hotel chain there was. But at the same time, we did occasionally get a short-term rental similar to what you get on an Airbnb. It was just, would book it through some sort of property manager or realtor or something like that. So this phenomenon of short-term rentals isn't really anything new. It's just that the technology of Airbnb has made it so much more accessible to so many more people. So that instead of having to have some property manager on a retainer, you can just join Airbnb and you're ready to go. I mean, is it that simple, Tim? Yeah, it is pretty easy to set up a listing and to start getting some interest in your property. However, there are certain things that you want to make sure you have set up beforehand, such as your insurance, obviously checking the local regulations. You want to be thoughtful about the kind of rules that you set up for your property. Like we have rules that say things like no parties, as I said, no more than four people, no smoking. But once you've figured all that out, it really is an easy process to get the listing up and running. Does Airbnb give you guidelines as to how to comply with local requirements and insurances and all that stuff? There's some information on their website, but they don't really, I mean, it really is town by town. It can vary. And so from what I've found, they don't really go so far as to give essentially legal advice. I mean, that would be a mistake, I think, on their part. Mm. Other than to say they have a pretty helpful guide about getting started where they do go through things like safety and, you know, insurance and regulations. And they're basically just saying, you know, make sure you check the zoning code and make sure you check licensing laws and things like that and make sure you have smoke detectors and carbon monoxide detectors. So they do have some guidelines like that, but they couldn't do, make something that's specific to every single town in the country, obviously. As with most things that libertarians like, these sort of decentralized market innovations tend to be disruptive to existing interests, such as hotels. And so we've seen a lot of pushback from various municipalities who have... Are there cases where they've banned Airbnb? Or? There are, yeah. In fact, Maine 
Um, I don't know if I can say it's leading the nation, but they're, they've certainly been at the forefront of banning Airbnb. <laughs> really? And some of the towns around Maine. Portland, Maine had a long drawn out process of trying to figure out what to do about short-term rentals in that city. And the end result has been essentially a ban on short-term rentals. Rockland, Maine, which is a small coastal town a little further up the coast, I think they have an outright ban. And recently, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which, as I said, is right over the border from me, they have a lawsuit that I think is still underway for a short-term rental host who was given like a cease and desist order or something from the city for operating a short-term rental within a single-family zone in the city because they say that the single-family zone in their zoning ordinance doesn't allow for transient occupancy, hmm. which is usually defined as a stay that's less than 30 days. So when we use terms like short-term rental and or transient rental or transient occupancy, typically we're talking about stays that are less than 30 days. That 30-day definition is actually something that's defined in building codes and fire codes and has carried over in many places into land use ordinances and possibly licensing regulations. So have you seen any pushback from your town? Well, it's funny you should ask. My town has just started to have these discussions about how they want to deal with short-term rentals. And this came up kind of surreptitiously as the planning board was trying to update and improve their accessory dwelling unit ordinance. So the zoning ordinance in my town, like everywhere else, they have these ridiculous single-family residence zones where you have to have one acre per dwelling unit. Hmm. So you end up with all this development that's essentially single-family homes on one-acre lots or bigger. There are some areas that are older parts of town, which is where we live, where it is a lot denser. And part of the reason for that is that they're served by water and sewer as opposed to septic and well. But at any rate, there's started to be this realization in recent years, not just in my town, but I think all across the country, that single-family residential zoning creates some challenges for both housing affordability, since most people aren't building, you know, studio and one-bedroom homes on these one-acre lots. If you're going out and building a house on, a, on an acre lot, you're going to at least build, make it a two-bedroom. And it's also an issue where, let's say, somebody has an aging parent that they want to have live on their property, but in an, in an independent unit. If you're not allowed to build a second unit on your property, then there's no way to make that happen. So this concept of accessory dwelling units has come up as kind of a loophole to all of these ridiculous single-family residential zones that many towns have in place really through most of the country. What an accessory dwelling unit, or ADU, is, is a small unit. Usually there are, there are restrictions on either the square footage or the number of bedrooms that people are allowed to build as a second unit on a lot that is zoned for a single-family residence. So what separates it as a dwelling unit typically is if it has a kitchen in it. So in other words, you could build a, a fourth or a fifth bedroom onto your house, but if you built that fourth bedroom with a second kitchen, then now you created a, essentially a separate dwelling unit, which will get you thrown in jail, according to most zoning ordinances. What if you just have a beer fridge next to your bed? <laughs> that is encouraged in many districts. <laughs> well, again, it's not just the kitchen. It, it's obviously, if it, if it is truly a separate unit, a separate lock and key, let's say, mm. that's not connected to the, or I guess it could be connected to the primary unit, but maybe there's there's a door under lock and key that it could act as an independent dwelling unit. Yeah, in Australia, they call those granny flats. Is that a, is that a U.S. thing too, or is it just an Australian thing? Well, they historically, they've called them, you know, in-law apartments or like a, maybe like a carriage house if it's an apartment over the garage or something like that. So this is something that's been around for a long, long time. Yeah. And these days it seem to be pretty popular because there's a lot of kit houses and containerized houses and stuff like that that you can order online and have it delivered and literally just dropped off a truck into your backyard. And now you've got some extra living space that you can rent out. 
Yeah, but you should really hire an architect if you're thinking of uh, <laughs> banning a unit on your property. I think you can even order these things like on Amazon. I think you can go on Amazon and order like a house, a kit house, and have it delivered. Yeah, you can, you can. But there's, there's still a lot of construction that has to happen on the back end of that when this thing arrives. Yeah. A lot of times those kit houses are kind of the, the structure and maybe they have some packages for, you know, the kitchens and the finishes that are kind of set up. But you, know, you still have to get the thing wired and plumbed and get a foundation under it. Mm. Yeah, it's a cool idea, but I don't know if the cost savings are always there, depending on what type of property you have and what type of modular home you're going for. So my town has had an ADU ordinance in place for a number of years, which does allow people to build these accessory dwelling units with, as I said, all these restrictions. Beyond the space restrictions, I think there's like an owner occupancy restriction. This ADU provision in the zoning ordinance is something that affordable housing advocates see as a way to get some more affordable housing units built in our town. There are a lot of people who rent in my town because there's a shipyard nearby where people come in on these two-year stints. They actually repair submarines there. So their submarine will be in for two years to overhaul a submarine. And the whole crew ends up living here for two years while that's happening. And then when it's done, they ship back out to somewhere else. So we have this transient population and a population with a lot of people renting. So some of the housing advocates in the area are interested in, in having more smaller units in town that could be more affordable to some of these. I mean, some of these guys are, you know, single guys coming in who just need a place to stay. A lot of them might rent a place with other roommates, I guess guys from their crew or whatever. So the town, and by the way, I keep saying the town and my town. I don't really want to say the name of my town here because I don't want this whole discussion to be specifically about my town. As I've said, these kind of discussions are happening really all over the country and in lots of cities. So I'm hoping that this discussion will be more of, of a general discussion on the topic that could be applicable in a lot of places. And I don't want to make this about like, oh, look at what my town's doing. You know, aren't they awful or aren't they great or whatever. So for the purpose of the podcast, I'll, I'll keep the name of my town anonymous here. You're not fooling anyone. We know where you live. So the town's been revisiting their accessory dwelling unit ordinance really with the goal of trying to make it easier for people to build these accessory dwelling units to make it more appealing. But in the course of that, one of the things that got put on the table was that some of the people on the planning board didn't think that these ADUs should be allowed to be rented as short-term rentals on Airbnb or these other sites. And I'll also say that I'm going to talk about Airbnb a lot here because that's the service that I'm most familiar with and that my wife and I use. But obviously, these discussions apply to VRBO, HomeAway, and, and any of these other home sharing sites that are out there. The thing that some of these guys are worried about is that if you allow people to build these accessory dwelling units and allow them to rent them out as short-term rentals, that you're just going to have these things popping up all over town as these investment properties rather than having them be primary residences you know, occupied by the homeowners and all that stuff. So that was where this got put on the table here. But of course, that threw up a big red flag to those of us who have properties on Airbnb or these other sites, because obviously we're concerned that this could be a slippery slope to a broader ban on short-term rentals within the town. So I got wind of this thing about a week or two before they were going to have a public hearing on this ADU regulation. And I started digging into the issue, you know, doing some research on what was happening in other towns looking into things like the building code and licensing requirements for hotels, and just trying to understand what the regulatory picture was for short-term rentals, both at the local and state level here in Maine. So I did all this research, and I typed up my statement to come and bring to this hearing. And I finished this whole thing up about an hour before I was going to be heading off to the hearing. And, you know, I sat back and read it out loud. 
And it took me like 20 minutes to redo the whole thing. <laughs> so I said, this is not going to fly. So I, I went through and did some quick edits and it got it down to maybe 10 minutes. I thought that maybe if I could keep them engaged that they'd let me keep talking. <laughs> and I got to the hearing and one of the first things that they said is that we'd like to have people keep their comments under three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so I just left the paper on my seat and I got up there and I winged it. And I said, I think a lot of what I wanted to say, at least I kind of tickled the issue. And I actually ended up getting a quote in the local paper. Did they bill you as professional podcaster? Known anarchist. <laughs> uh, no, they actually got my name wrong in the, uh, in the article, but it's all right. I don't mind uh, keeping a low profile. It's fake news. But they also made a point that they didn't really want to focus on the broader short-term rental issue. As part of that discussion, they were trying to keep it focused on the ADUs and the issue of having short-term rentals for ADUs. So I was able to weave that together a bit. I had done research on ADUs as well. In fact, my wife and I at one point had been thinking of, or at least looking into the possibility of, of building an ADU on our property here. But I didn't get to say everything I wanted to say about it, which I was kind of disappointed about. But then I realized that I have a podcast <laughs> and a captive audience. Oh, you must not check our download numbers very often. <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe we haven't been able to make as many of them captives as we'd like. So what we want to do with the rest of this episode is to go through some of these arguments about short-term rentals and how towns should be handling them from a regulatory standpoint. And the way that I've organized this is as I've set it up as a kind of a top 10 list, or it's actually 11 of them, but these are kind of the top 11 fears about short-term home rentals. So it's essentially a set of kind of straw man arguments, <laughs> why people think short-term rentals should be banned, although not really. A lot of these I've seen in writing, I've seen as arguments in other towns where they've, they've used them as a rationale for banning short-term rentals or for requiring licensure or requiring special permits, change of use permits from the Board of Appeals, special exceptions, things like that. These are, I think, actual arguments that have been made. So I want to kind of preempt that discussion in my town by putting all that stuff out on the table and then trying to smash it as best as I can <laughs> with some of my own research and understanding. Okay, we'll start by just listing each of the 11 fears people have about short-term home rentals in their neighborhood. And then we'll go back and Tim can address each one of these. So what's fear number one? Home rentals hurt the town's character. Fear number two? Home rentals make housing less affordable. Fear number three, home rentals are unsafe. Fear number four, home rentals are not in compliance with building codes. Fear number five, home rentals are not licensed and inspected as lodging places. Fear number six, home rentals are preparing and serving food without a license. Fear number seven. Home rentals are not ADA or FHA compliant for accessibility for people with disabilities. Fear number eight. Home rentals do not have adequate insurance. Fear number nine. Home number rentals nine. are not number paying nine. taxes. Number nine. Number Ooh. nine. Number nine. Fear number ten. Home rentals are unfair competition to hotels. Wah, wah. Fear number 11. Let's go to 11. Home rentals create nuisances. All right, now that that's over with, fear number one, home rentals hurt your town's character. One of the primary stated purposes of most zoning codes is to maintain and preserve a town's character. And so what the heck does that mean? In my town, the ordinance defines character as 
the main or essential nature, especially as strongly marked and serving to distinguish. Does that clear it up? That's exactly what I would have said. I mean, here's the thing. This is how this gets used. I was at a zoning meeting, not in my town, a different town, a couple of weeks ago. And one of the proposals there was for someone to just subdivide a lot. They had a big lot. They wanted to subdivide it into three new lots that could then be built on with individual units. And these three lots met all of the zoning requirements, except that one of the lots could only get like 80 feet of frontage on the street, as opposed to 100 feet, which is required by the dimensional requirements for that zone within the zoning ordinance. So in other words, when someone creates a lot within this zone, they want to have at least 100 foot width of the lot line along that street in the front. And as the board started discussing it, they start getting into things like, well, you know, I'm a little worried that we're going to have these three houses right next to each other, where we're shrinking down this frontage, that they're going to be so close to each other that it's going to be out of character with the spacing of the other houses in the neighborhood. Yeah, because God forbid you're walking your dog past and you have to walk past three houses in the same time it would usually take you to walk past one. What a travesty. There are towns that have, you know, 50 foot frontages. There are towns that have much less. You think about any kind of urban context and you can certainly get down below that. But that's the argument here is that, well, this isn't an urban place. This is a nice suburban neighborhood with single family houses. And this missing 20 feet of frontage is going to just destroy the character of the neighborhood. <laughs> Before you know it, there's going to be a tire recycling place right next door. And all the property values are going to just plummet. Well, that's a whole separate issue of having a commercial use. I mean, God forbid you have a commercial use in a residential neighborhood. Yeah, but those people who would be forced to live in these smaller houses might be so desperate that they turn their yard into a junkyard. Because they're not like us. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> well, what was interesting is where this went. That was kind of the first round of discussion. And then the next round of discussion, they talked about what would happen if they only let them subdivide it into two lots. And there they said, well, if you only subdivide it into two lots, now you're going to have these two big lots, you know, with 150 foot frontage. And then those are going to have these big houses on them that are going to be out of character with the neighborhood. <laughs> 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 so what do we want? Would we rather have these smaller houses on these smaller lots? And it wasn't even, the houses could still be big because the lots were pretty big. Yeah. So you could still build a pretty big house on these normal size lots. One that's just a little bit narrower at the street. 80 foot frontage sounds pretty big to me. <laughs> yeah. They're like, oh, well, will the fire trucks be able to get in? It's like, yeah, it's 80 feet. Oh, God. I mean, that's what part of this is based on is fire department access and that kind of stuff. This is one of the things that came up when we interviewed Chuck Marone was, you know, you have these houses closer together with skinnier frontages and you get more users with less infrastructure because in the space that you could have two houses coming off that water main, now you've got three houses coming off of it. And so for the same amount of pipe in the road, you've got three people paying that cost instead of just two. I think the issue here was that this particular town has one of those fire trucks like you see in Looney Tunes that starts driving by and it just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. <laughs> so they actually need that 100 feet to park the fire truck out front of the property. Anyway, so that's the kind of thing that these towns start talking about when they talk about character. And it's not just that. It's not just about the size and spacing of the houses. It's about in some places, you know, do you have a front stoop that faces the street or do you have a gable roof as opposed to a flat roof or a low slope roof? Yeah, one of my neighbors is looking to subdivide their lot and all this stuff has come up with about the character of the neighborhood and a big thing someone raised. They wanted to do a two-story house, and they were basically forced to, to have this tiny second floor with sloping roofs just so that it would have the appearance of a one-story house from the, the street. Now, what this meant was that the back of the house, which is right on my property line, would be two stories, and that's where all the windows would be. So in order to preserve this character of the neighborhood on this tiny little side street that three people walk past a day, 
they've had to design it in a way that imposes more of a privacy concern on me, who's the actual person that would be affected by it. <laughs> so I assume you went down and processed it, you NIMBY. The only issue we raised was that we said we were okay with it as long as they had opaque glass in those upstairs windows. Opaque glass? What do you call it? <laughs> Frosted glass. Yeah, no, that makes sense for a NIMBY. I'm actually in favor of this. This is literally in my backyard. I mean, the, the back of the house is literally two meters from my property line. See, that's why you need a 100-foot frontage in your neighborhood to keep the houses further away. That's why we need those 10-meter setbacks, right? <laughs> <laughs> the way that this term character gets used in zoning hearings is it becomes this catch-all where pretty much anybody can stand up and say anything about a proposed project yeah. and tag on to the end that... They don't think it's consistent with the character of their neighborhood. Yeah. When you're playing NIMBY bingo, this is like the free space in the middle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know it's going to come up at every single meeting. Exactly. Now, all of that said, we can debate whether there is some reasonable rationale for an area to place certain restrictions on certain types of development within certain areas because they would be in some way detrimental. But in reality, these discussions often get into this minutia of, you know, does the door face the street or... Is it have a pitched roof or, well, I just don't think it looks like a very New England type of building or, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is the stuff people say. So it might be useful as a general kind of guideline in evaluating proposed developments, but that's not how it actually gets used within zoning hearings. So then what's the argument for short-term rentals hurting the character of the neighborhood? I mean, they're not actually changing the architecture of the houses, right? That's right. So I think what people would say is that a short-term rental use is substantially different from a long-term or permanent resident use of a single-family home. So in other words, there's something substantially different about having a different family at the house next door every week as opposed to having the same family there every week, you know, over the course of the year. Yeah, that's just idiotic. Yeah, well, I mean, okay, to be charitable here, the bigger concern here that could be an impact on character is if this temporary occupancy is resulting in nuisances. If you're having people come and party there and park cars all up and down the street and make a lot of noise, people tie that concern into this character concern. We're going to come back to nuisances at the end because some of these other discussions are going to inform our solutions for that issue. So putting that aside, yeah, I think it's a hard argument to make that a different family living in a house each week is substantially different in terms of the use of that building and the use of the property from a permanent resident or a long-term renter living in that house. Looking at how this issue specifically might impact the character of my town, as I said, I live in Maine. And Joe, do you know what it says on the license plates in Maine? Vacation land. That's right. New Hampshire's live free or die. Maine is vacation land. <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, but Maine has had this vacation land logo on their license plates as far back as the 1930s. And in fact, it's the longest running slogan that's been on any license plate in the United States. <laughs> so land of Lincoln, all that stuff, live free or die, that all came after vacation land. So this has been this idea that Maine is a destination for vacationers has gone back at least to then. And in fact, it really started in the second half of the 19th century after the Civil War. You had the Industrial Revolution. You had a lot of people moving to cities and you had cities transforming and becoming more crowded, more dirty, more busy. And there started to be this desire for people to get back to nature. So nature, you know, before this time had been kind of a burden to people. Nobody would have thought to go and spend time in the woods as a vacation, unless you're like Henry David Thoreau. But there was this shift in aesthetic sensibility 
in the 19th century where people all of a sudden wanted to start exploring these natural places, which Maine has lots of. And at the same time, there were train lines that were being extended from cities up through northern parts of Maine, up along the coast, so that people now from cities could get to the beaches and to the lakes, the forests. And you had this development of essentially resorts that would be popping up in various towns all up and down Maine's coast. So usually it would start with a developer going in, buying up a bunch of land, and then building a hotel and creating a little maybe beachfront resort. And then as people would come and spend time at the hotel, they'd get a letter in the room saying, hey, by the way, we have these plots of land for sale you know, all around this hotel. Wouldn't you like to have a permanent vacation home up here on this beautiful beach in Maine? And so they started selling off these lots to people to build up cottages and, and all these little vacation neighborhoods in some of what have come to be these tourist areas in Maine. And that really continued through the 20th century. Of course, with, with automobiles, it became even easier for people to get to these places. And where all of this has gotten us is that today, 15% of homes in Maine are vacation homes. That might not sound like a whole lot, but it's actually the highest percentage of vacation homes of any state in the United States. The national average is about 3%. So this is like five times the national average of vacation homes within the state. And looking at the census data, this has been true every decade as far back as 1940. At that point, it was 10% of homes in Maine. But every decade, Maine has had more vacation homes as a percentage of total homes than any other state. Vermont and New Hampshire are up there too, but Maine's the leader. So this vacation land slogan really has some substance here in Maine. Now, of course, these vacation homes are not all short-term rentals. A lot of these people probably own a home that they come to in the summer and then maybe travel down to Florida and stay in Florida for the winter, which is what our parents do. But I think it's a pretty safe bet to say that as long as there have been vacation homes in Maine, that there has been short-term rental of vacation homes. So you can drive all around pretty much any coastal town here in Maine, and you'll see these little cottages with like an eight and a half by 11 sign stapled to the side of the building that says for rent, and it's got a phone number on it. And sometimes they'll even write down an erasable marker, you know, when the vacancies are. So this has been going on for a long time, long before Airbnb and VRBO and all these other sites. And in fact, there's a whole industry in Maine of vacation rental agencies. So these are essentially like real estate agencies who specialize in marketing and renting these vacation homes for short-term renters who are coming to Maine. So this has been going on for a long time in Maine. Okay, so it sounds like you have a pretty strong case for Maine, but what about other places that don't have as much of a reputation for tourism? Well, part of this, I think, comes down to a property rights issue, where there's a question here of if you're a property owner, you own a residential property, do you have the right to rent that property out to a tenant? And you know, beyond the vacation rental application, if you go back a century or so, it was not uncommon for people to maybe rent out a room in their house to a lodger whether that was on a temporary or short-term basis. If you look at old houses here in New England, what you find is a lot of them have this, this chopped up first floor plan where you have all these little rooms with doors on them. You know, one might be the dining room, one might be a living room, one might be a sitting room. And part of the reason that they did that was that it gave them flexibility in how they used the house so that if they had an aging relative, they would have maybe a room in the house where they could sleep or they could, as I said, rent a room to somebody else. So people used to use their houses in a lot more flexible ways than what we're accustomed to these days. I think there's an argument to be made that the ability to rent one's house out or at least rent a room in one's house is a longstanding property right. And that for a town to take that away from people 
would really be a form of a taking of this right that might need to be compensated under the Fifth Amendment. So if the fear is that these short-term home rentals hurt the character of the town, what's the solution? The solution is to recognize that home rentals are a longstanding feature of the town. And that might not be a lot of units, but again, I think it's a right that has been established in many places. Beyond that, the ability of home rentals to bring visitors into these neighborhoods within a town creates a much more authentic experience for a visitor coming there. You know, everybody, when they travel, says they want to live like a local. And home rentals really do that in a way that hotels can't. And then, of course, once these visitors have come to the town, uh, they're visiting businesses, they're supporting cultural activities, they're buying things, they're attending events. They really are reinforcing many of the things that people would view as essential to the town's character. And in fact, some of those things, like having special events in the summer, might not be possible without all of these vacationers coming to visit. Assuaged! Fear number two, short-term rentals make housing less affordable. So this, of course, is a big issue that planning boards are concerning themselves with. There's this kind of knee-jerk assumption that if you're allowing short-term rentals, that that's going to reduce the number of housing units available for permanent residents. And then that that, in turn, is going to increase housing prices throughout the town. So first of all, let's look again at the numbers here. In Maine, as of 2016, there were 3,700 Airbnb listings. Okay, this is in the whole state of Maine, a little less than 4,000 Airbnb listings. Yeah, but to be fair, there's only like 10,000 people in the whole state of Maine. <laughs> and everyone gets a free moose. <laughs> well, that's why we need all these vacationers to come, so we actually have more people to talk to. No, so 3,700 units represents less than 1% of homes and even less than 5% of vacation homes. So as I said, 15% of homes are vacation homes. At this point, only 5% of those are listed on Airbnb. And frankly, many of those were probably already short-term rentals before Airbnb ever came along. As I say, they may have been working with these local agents, using classified ads, or stapling four rent signs to the side of their house. Yeah, and, and how is that for the character of the neighborhood <laughs> with a four rent sign stapled to the side of every house? <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm sure that's putting people out of compliance with whatever signage ordinance they have in that town. Okay, so we're talking about 1% of homes here that apparently sites like Airbnb have allowed to be used as short-term rentals. And by the way, that 1% number, I think that's pretty consistent throughout the country. So it's not like there's this tidal wave of home conversions to short-term rentals, especially if you think that many of those were probably already short-term rentals before Airbnb came along. But fair enough, you know, 1% of homes, you know, maybe that could have some marginal effect on rental values within certain demographics or whatever. So how do we find out if these short-term rentals are affecting housing prices? Well, there was a study done in 2018 in Santa Monica, California, which is a city that has banned short-term rentals throughout the whole city. I think they might have banned them in 2015. So they have a couple of years of data showing what has happened since the ban. Has this ban had an impact on housing costs? And they did this by comparing Santa Monica, which had the ban, to a couple of other towns around it, which did not have this ban, and to see what the relative impacts on, in particular, I think they were looking at long-term rental prices. And what they found is that there has been no significant impact on long-term rental prices in Santa Monica compared to other areas around it that do not have a ban on short-term rentals. Now, there, there have been other studies done. There was a study done in Vancouver and I think Canada and maybe Edmonton, a bunch of places in, in Canada. And there was also a study done in New York City. And all of those studies actually have shown an impact on long-term rental values. But here's the thing. All of those studies were done by the same guy 
<laughs> using the same methodology and using the same bad set of data. Airbnb doesn't release data about all of their listings and when places are being rented and for how much and all of that stuff. However, there is a site called AirDNA where some guy has created some kind of a web crawler that searches Airbnb's site and keeps a record of what units are listed, what the prices are, and when the listings come offline. So in other words, the assumption is that if they see a place that's listed for rent and then it comes off, there's an assumption there that the place has actually been rented. Now, there are some problems with this data. One is, as I just said, if all they're doing is looking at listings that come offline and assuming that that means it's been rented, they're probably counting a lot of things that aren't actually bookings. So for example, my wife and I at the beginning of the summer might go through and open up every weekend available for rental during the course of the summer. And then as those weekends start to book up, we're going to go back in and take some of those weekends off that we want to plan to be around the house. However, as I understand it, I think this AirDNA site would see that and would assume that we've just booked our place for whatever price we had it listed at, you know, before we took it off. So that's my understanding of how the site works. I don't know if that's entirely correct. Airbnb has protested some of these studies saying that the data is all wrong. In New York in particular, there's a big concern about what they call ghost hotels, which is where somebody takes an apartment building and they convert all of the units to short-term rental units that they put up on Airbnb. So they're essentially operating this entire building as a hotel. And this is something that's going on in New York, apparently. New York has a law in place that limits short-term rental ownership to one unit per owner. And Airbnb has stated that 90% of their hosts in New York actually have their unit as their primary residence. So it seems like the data used in these studies is a little suspect. And on the other hand, the rental data that they're using is from Zillow, which is another website, which does its own kind of index of rental values. Um, and, you know, I'm no statistician. I can't really speak to whether or not Zillow is a, you know, a reliable statistical source for the, these type of uh, academic studies. <laughs> I think Zillow just gets values and listings from, what is it, MLS service, you know, the realtor listing service. Mm -hmm. And then they do some interpolations to work out, you know, comparable places in the same neighborhood. So if you're looking for the rental value of your house, they would look at other houses that are rented that are similar square footage and similar house value and would come up with some sort of composite, you know, estimated rent based on that. Yeah. So I don't know exactly how these guys are, are using that data. But again, it's the way the study was done is they're kind of compiling this data from AirDNA, compiling this data from Zillow. And I'm sure they had other census data and stuff like that that they're using. And this whole thing is this big exercise in statistical analysis, right? That they're just assembling this big set of data and running some algorithms on it to try to come up with some statistics to show some impact on rental values. Now, you compare that to the Santa Monica study, which, of course, relied on probably some of the same type of statistical sets. But there they had this direct comparison between Santa Monica and these other places. So it was kind of like an A-B test. So if it was bad data, at least it was bad data for both places. And it was more of a comparison, whereas this one is really just a, a statistical study of let's look at all the data we have and see what we can squeeze out of it. Not to mention, if you're running a study like that during a time of rising house prices, such as what we've been in for the last 10 years or so, then no matter what you track, you're going to see rising house prices as a result of whatever this other factor is. Yeah. And I think and I think in this study, that's actually one of the more specific arguments against this type of a study is that people tend to buy and set up short-term rental units in areas that are appreciating in value. So someone might buy a house as an investment property, and then they're renting it on Airbnb to generate some income. But if you're doing that, you're going to want to look to a place that you think is going to be going up in value. And so there's a built-in bias there where in areas where people are starting short-term rentals, 
are probably some of the hotter areas in town where prices are appreciating anyway. So it's kind of a chicken and egg thing there. It's difficult to show that a short-term rental would be causal to those home values and rental values going up in that place. So all of that aside, let's assume that their data is okay and that all of their analysis is good and that it's meaningful and significant and showing causality. Here's what these guys have shown. I haven't looked up the Canadian studies, but in New York City, the claim was that short-term rentals have taken something like 5,000 permanent residences off of the market. Okay. Yeah. All right. So this is 5,000 units taken away from a city that has 3 million housing units in it. <laughs> okay. So there, I mean, this appears to be less than the 1% number that I had mentioned in Maine. However, you know, you could say that on the margin that this is still having an impact on the number of available units in any given year for rent. In fact, this New York study did observe an impact on rental prices in the city. And what they found was that short-term rentals in New York City increased rental values by 1.5%. <laughs> but hold on, hold on, I'm not done. It's 1.5% over three years. <laughs> okay. And this, I mean, this study has been like trumpeted from the rafters by people saying, you see, you see, short-term rentals raise rents, you know, they're destroying our neighborhoods. Nobody's going to be able to afford to live here. Does that take into account inflation, which is probably two or 3%? I'm sure it does. At least God, I would hope it does. <laughs> um, um, right. Okay. So half of a percent per year, these people are saying that short-term rentals are increasing rents by in New York City of all places. <laughs> right. And not only that, but the way this study came about in New York was this guy had done a bunch of these studies in Canada showing, uh, I assume, a similar impact on, on a bunch of towns in Canada. And then New York's hotel lobby, together with some other advocacy groups that were opposed to short-term rentals in New York, looked at this guy's other studies, said, hey, he looks like he's doing a great job over in Canada. Let's bring him down to New York and do the same study. And, you know, what do you know? He found the same exact same result in New York that he found everywhere else. <laughs> so as I understand it, this study was sponsored by New York's hotel lobby, which, by, which is one of the biggest unions or, or lobbies or whatever it is in, in the city. They have a ton of political influence, as well as some other advocacy groups that were getting against short-term rentals. Now, when we look at where I am in Maine, and probably a lot of other places that have a strong short-term rental market, at least places that are outside of cities, this is a seasonal market where I am. So there aren't many people who are going to be coming here to rent my house in the middle of winter. Nobody wants to be in Maine in March. So whereas in New York and San Francisco and these other cities, you truly have a year-round potential for short-term rentals. In Maine and a lot of other vacation areas, a lot of these places are seasonal. So it's not going to make sense to rent a place as a short-term rental unit for the entire year. What some people do in my town is they do short-term rentals during the summer, and then they'll try to find a winter renter for five or six months um, over the winter. So it would be a hard argument to make that this study in New York that showed this minuscule impact on rent using questionable means and biased funding, that that's somehow translatable to the short-term rental market here in Maine, and that short-term rentals here would be increasing rent prices for everybody else. Well, especially when that unit you're renting is your primary residence. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. A lot of these short-term rentals, and this is certainly true in New York, for us, as I said, it's our primary residence where we're just renting it on weekends when we're not here. We have another friend in town who rents out a couple of rooms in her house while she's living there. And we have other friends who purchased a home here as a vacation home for themselves, but obviously they're not here every weekend. And so short-term rentals are filling those gaps for them on weekends when they're not here. They're able to generate a little bit of income from the property. So those three cases of a permanent residence, renting rooms in a house, or somebody's own personal vacation rental, none of those houses are coming back onto the market if short-term rentals are banned. 
none of those are going to be available for long-term rental. And in fact, if you do have short-term rentals in the summer, you do have the possibility of these being offered up, as I said, as a winter rental for six months or so. So that actually could be contributing to making rental units available. I recently read an article on Strong Towns by Kia Wilson. She had this dream of owning a multifamily rental property in St. Louis. And she was initially very opposed to Airbnb and other short-term rentals and had a lot of the same objections that we've been talking about here, where she had seen similar houses on her block that had just been bought up by real estate conglomerates and turned into these ghost hotels where all the units in the building are rented out via Airbnb, but there's no permanent resident or long-term renter there. And the article is really good. It's a two-part article. In the first one, she talks about sort of the saga of choosing and buying a property and then fixing it up and a lot of the challenges that arose there with maintaining the building and maintaining a healthy enough cash flow that she could provide a dependable rental to her tenants. However, she had a string of bad luck where multiple water heaters blew out in, in one year and there were a lot of big maintenance expenses that came due all at the same time. And so she bit the bullet and decided to put one of the units on Airbnb. And the way it worked out, By renting this one unit as a short-term rental on Airbnb, she was able to bring in more money and effectively subsidize the other long-term renters who were in the other units. And this shows that short-term rentals do have a role to play in providing affordable housing. Essentially, what they're doing is allowing you to let the long-term units at a lower rent while using the short-term rental to bolster the overall cash flow of the project. Yeah, I think that's a big piece of the puzzle that most people miss when they look at short-term rentals and its potential effects on, on the rental market is that what short-term rentals are doing, it's not so much that they're cannibalizing available housing units. What they're doing is they're optimizing vacancies and inefficiencies in the housing market. And how that affects the affordability picture is that it makes those units affordable to their owners. The way that Airbnb got started was these two guys had an apartment in San Francisco and they couldn't afford it. They couldn't afford to live in the city. I mean, San Francisco is one of the most expensive cities in the nation. And while there's a lot of tech money going in there, there's certainly a lot of people who struggle to afford housing in the city. So what these guys did is there was some conference coming to town and they started advertising, I don't know, on Craigslist or something, basically floor space in their apartment for people to come and sleep in their apartment to go and attend this conference. And that was successful. And that has essentially become the model for Airbnb, at least the, the, the early model that it would provide an opportunity for people, especially in these expensive cities like San Francisco and like New York, to generate supplemental income from their house, these expensive houses that people have in these expensive cities. They could use their house as a productive asset and generate some meaningful income from it that would offset for them the cost of living in that place. And again, as I touched on earlier, that's historically something that people used to do a lot. If they needed to generate some extra income, they might let out a room in their house to a boarder or a lodger. And that's something that we've lost that Airbnb and HomeAway and FlipKey and all these other sites are now making more viable. Yeah, I was wondering what the actual balance of revenue looks like for a short-term rental versus a longer-term rental, or even for, like in your case, short-term rental on the weekend versus, say, your mortgage or something like that. I imagine this relationship varies depending on location. Yeah, I think so. I mean, certainly in cities, you can probably get more of a year-round rental market. Where we are here, it's more of a summer seasonal vacation rental market. We could rent our unit probably throughout the year and and get renters to come in, but we would have a much, we'd have to really lower our rates in the winter to attract people. So we don't bother with it. But even at that, renting our home for most of the weekends in the summer, as well as a few weeks here and there over the course of the year, what we found is that we're able to cover maybe 60 to 75% of our mortgage, depending on how many nights we actually rent it out during the course of the year. Is that just during those months? 
Or is it the year round, like 60, 60% year No, year-round. for the whole year. Wow. Right, for the whole year, yeah. <laughs> Effectively, because you're able to rent your house out on Airbnb, you can afford almost double the house. Well, in our case, we can just afford the house that we have. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, but that's what I mean. It allows you to afford that house. Right, it allows us to afford this house in this location. And what we're starting to see in my town, as in a lot of towns, is that prices have really started to rise. Portsmouth, New Hampshire, over the river, has had a crazy real estate market over the past five years or so. And our town is kind of starting to play catch up with that, which is why people are starting to worry about these housing affordability issues. And of course, part of the reason for this is these single-family residential zones that we mentioned earlier. My town has a requirement through most of the zoning districts in town for a minimum lot size per dwelling unit of 40,000 square feet. Okay, so that means that in order to build a house, you have to have a one-acre lot, essentially. And if you wanted to build a second house on that lot, it would have to be at least a two-acre lot. Now, there are some zones that have a little more density. A lot of those areas I just mentioned are served by septic and well, as opposed to water and sewer. So the areas on water and sewer are more dense, but they're still kind of silly. It's like, you know, you need 8,000 square feet to build a single dwelling unit on certain lots. And it's really not allowing some kind of optimal density on any of these sites within town. So that makes it really hard for people to come in and build additional housing units in an incremental way. And when the housing units do get built, they're in the denser, more expensive parts of town. So even these sites that need to have a, a well and a septic on the same site, the state of Maine Department of Environmental Protection, who regulates septic systems, their recommended minimum lot size per dwelling unit is 20,000 square feet per unit, not 40,000. And so my town, they could change one number in the zoning ordinance from 40,000 square feet per dwelling unit to 20,000 square feet per dwelling unit and double the potential capacity for housing units in my town. And if those units did get developed, they would be done in an incremental way by infilling existing neighborhoods with duplexes or with additional single-family houses, maybe by subdividing one-acre lots into half-acre lots. You could infill and densify these existing neighborhoods without really changing the character, you know, the sacred character of these places that they're trying to defend. So I know there are no silver bullets in housing, but this is some low-hanging fruit in my town. And until they start addressing that, it's pretty disingenuous for them to say that, you know, short-term rentals are somehow the cause of housing unaffordability in my town. Assuaged! Fear number three, home rentals are unsafe. So, of course, safety is a big concern about home rentals, or at least it's something that the hotel lobby has kind of been harping on, suggesting that where these home rentals are unregulated, that they're putting the people who are coming to rent them at risk. And the next point is going to be specifically about the building codes. But for this one, I want to look at some actual statistics about life safety between hotels, single-family homes, and then short-term rental of single-family homes. The basic argument here is that when you have transient occupancy of a building, that you have people coming in who are unfamiliar with their surroundings. So this is why in hotels, they always have an, like an exit map on the door. So you look at the door and, and it tells you which way to go to get to the closest stairway to get out of the hotel. You could also have people who maybe aren't familiar with certain systems in the home. So, you know, if there's a gas fireplace or something that maybe they wouldn't know how to use that the right way. So in hotels, there are code requirements and licensing and inspection requirements that try to ensure a greater level of safety for people who are staying there. And this concern seems particularly important when you look at single-family homes. Because single-family homes tend to be a greater risk of fire than most other building types. So to put some numbers to that, in the U.S., there are about 91 million single-family dwellings in which there are about 2,200 deaths from fire each year. 
So that works out to be about one fire death per 41,000 single-family dwellings over the course of the year in the U.S. Now, it's difficult to compare this to hotels because, again, people aren't using them the same way that they're using hotels. But I think it's safe to say that hotels are a bit safer. There are about 4.8 million hotel rooms in the United States. And in those, you might see about 15 fire deaths per year. So that's one fire death per 320,000 hotel rooms. So that's, again, compared to one per 41,000 single-family dwellings. And I know that's not a direct comparison. Again, it's hard to really compare these numbers, but it puts it in perspective. In addition to fire, we also worry about carbon monoxide. In the U.S., there are, on average, 48 deaths from carbon monoxide poisoning from heating appliances in U.S. homes, which works out to one death per 2.8 million homes annually. Now, even hotels, with all of their rules and regulations, have had carbon monoxide poisonings over the year. I didn't find great statistics on this, but I did find reference from a 2012 USA Today investigation that had identified eight carbon monoxide deaths over a three-year period. So this averages to one carbon monoxide death in 1.8 million hotel rooms per year. So if you're looking at those numbers, you know, technically you're at greater risk of carbon monoxide poisoning in a hotel room than you are in a single-family home, which is one carbon monoxide death in 2.8 million homes. So first of all, what we see here is that it's really difficult to make these kind of comparisons. And part of the reason for that is that the number of deaths is actually quite low. I mean, these are pretty low ratios, even for the single-family homes. However, there's a legitimate concern here that transient occupants coming in to stay in single-family homes, which is a building type, um, seem to present a greater risk of fire death, might be creating a situation that is less safe compared to staying in a hotel. However, I believe that short-term home rentals actually have a different risk profile than single-family homes on their own. So for one thing, smoking is one of the leading causes of deadly residential fires. And most home rental hosts, I know we don't, probably don't allow smoking. And just to be clear about how this can be enforced, you know, on Airbnb, you have house rules. We have four or five rules. The first one is no smoking. If we came into our house and it smelled like someone had been smoking in it, we could file a complaint on Airbnb and get their money back from the rental. And then that renter would have a ding in their profile saying that they didn't follow house rules. I'm not sure exactly how far Airbnb takes us if you get three strikes or whatever before they kick you off the system, but I think they will eventually kick people off who have received multiple complaints. So if home rental hosts aren't allowing smoking in their units, that's reducing a big risk factor for home fires. Another point here is that home rental owners are probably more likely to have functioning smoke detectors than single-family homes. I found a statistic that only about 67% of single-family homes have smoke detectors, which is kind of unbelievable to me. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe this is functioning smoke detectors. Because what happens a lot of places is people put in the battery ones, and then they never replace the batteries. Yeah, in Australia, I think it's mandatory to have at least one hardwired smoke detector in the house. That's true here for newer construction, or in some places you can, you can do like the 10-year sealed battery units. But for older construction, um, sometimes there are allowances for battery units, because they'd rather have a battery unit in there than no unit at all. Does Airbnb require their hosts to have smoke detectors? They don't require it. They do, as I said, when you sign up, they give you a bunch of stuff to read through. And one of them, of course, talks about home safety and smoke detectors are a big part of that. I don't know about other companies, but one thing that Airbnb does do is you can get a free smoke detector and carbon monoxide detector from Airbnb when you set up your listing. They'll actually send you a free smoke detector if you ask for one. But that's not profit maximizing. <laughs> so there was a study that was done fairly recently 
on, I think this was particularly Airbnb hosts, where they surveyed people about whether or not they had smoke detectors in their unit. And the results of the survey showed that at least 80% of Airbnb hosts reported having smoke detectors. And again, there may be more than that who have them but didn't report it. So again, that's 80% compared to 67%, which is more typical for single-family homes. And to give a little more perspective on that, in multifamily housing, that percentage is 88%. So while it's not perfect, it would appear that short-term rentals, particularly Airbnbs, tend to be better equipped with smoke detectors than typical single-family homes. And again, where smoking is a major cause of home fires, smoke detectors that don't work are a major cause of deaths from fire. Because once a fire starts in a house, I've read that on average you have about six minutes to get out of a house. And it's not that the house is going to burn down within six minutes, but it's the smoke. Usually it's the smoke that kills people, not the fire. So hopefully short-term rentals are more likely to have smoke detectors. On Airbnb, the host can advertise smoke detectors and other safety features like carbon monoxide detectors on their listing so that people know when they're coming in, or at least they can go down and read and find out whether or not the house has smoke detectors. There are some other things to take into consideration here too. So for me here in Maine, where this is a seasonal summer rental market, most short-term rentals happen here when people aren't using heating equipment or you know, making fires in a fireplace. So that risk of carbon monoxide poisoning from your heating equipment or risk of fire from a fireplace is not going to be there during the summer. What about insurance? Does your insurance company require a smoke detector if you're renting out your place? Yeah, we'll talk about insurance requirements in one of these next arguments. But generally, home insurers do ask if you have smoke detectors when they're writing your insurance policies. And frankly, these days, I don't know if you can even get insured if you don't have smoke detectors in your house. I mean, it's such a small cost that I would imagine that most home insurers are going to be requiring it, which tells me that a lot of those places that don't have smoke detectors probably don't have homeowner's insurance. But in particular, if you're getting a policy that covers short-term rentals, that's certainly something they're going to be asking about. So one last point here is, is as I said, the primary concern with the transient occupancy is your unfamiliarity with a building and how to get out of it. But if you think about single-family houses, most of them have fairly simple layouts with obvious egress paths. It's not like you need exit signs on every wall in your house to tell people, you know, when they walk out of the bedroom to go down the stairs and then walk out the front door. If you're in a big hotel and your room is right in the middle of it, you've got a pretty long way to go down a hallway of identical doors to get out of there mm -hmm. compared to being in a house where you're probably no more than 20 or 30 steps away from a door. That's right. So again, even though statistically single-family homes seem to have a greater risk, I don't think that this egress issue is that much of a risk factor in single-family homes, even for people who aren't familiar with the layout of the building. You know, and another point to make about this is that when people are coming in and renting a single-family home, they understand that. They realize that they're not coming to a hotel, and they should understand that the risks there are commensurate with the risks of a single-family home. In fact, here in Maine, there's a law that requires rental hosts for single-family homes to post signage in each bedroom that notifies the renters that, I forget the wording, but it basically says the unit is not inspected by the Department of Health and Services as a lodging place. So if you're following that rule here in Maine, it should be pretty clear to renters that this is not a licensed and regulated and inspected facility. It's just somebody's house, and the safety risks there shouldn't be significantly different than the single-family house that they live in for the other 364 days of the year. Are there any statistics about the number of deaths at short-term rentals? I haven't been able to find any statistics about this. Those numbers I mentioned earlier are things that are tracked year to year by, I think, the NFPA and some other organizations. But as far as I can tell, 
nobody has broken down the fire deaths or carbon monoxide deaths specifically for short-term home rentals. However, as you can imagine, where there have been deaths in short-term rentals, they have been breathlessly reported by the media. So I've tried to find as many of these stories as I can, and here's what I've found. There has been one carbon monoxide poisoning in a short-term rental in Taiwan. There has been a gas poisoning of a family of four in Mexico, which got some press here because it happened to be an American family. But as tragic as those events are, if we really want to understand the safety of short-term home rentals in the U.S., we should try to focus on deaths that have happened in the United States. And I have actually found reports of deaths in short-term rental units in the United States. Actually, it's not deaths plural. It's death. It's one death. (laughs) Okay, there has been one death that I've been able to find reported. This was in an Airbnb rental unit in the U.S. Was that due to carbon monoxide or fire? Well, actually, it, it wasn't due to either carbon monoxide or fire. What happened was a family had rented an Airbnb unit, and the father was outside swinging on a rope swing that was tied to a tree branch, and the branch broke off the tree and hit him on the head. And, and you know, I mean, I, I hate to make light of this, but I think it's pretty clear here that this is not a building safety concern. We just have to ban assault trees. <laughs> I mean, there is no safety regulation, there is no inspection, there's no licensing law, there's no building code requirement that would have prevented this. Well, that's the problem. (laughs) It was just an unfortunate uh, freak accident that could have happened to anybody and and had nothing to do with the fact that this was a short-term rental. Other than the fact that this guy probably wasn't familiar with that tree. (laughs) Okay. But I mean, again, if we're comparing the safety of home rentals to the safety of hotels, Let's look back at the numbers here. So for Airbnb, there are about 550,000 Airbnb listings in America. So if we conservatively assume that rope swings may claim the lives of one Airbnb guest per year, that's one death per 550,000 Airbnb listings. So you could compare that to hotels, which have one death just from fire per 320,000 hotel rooms. So, of course, as I said, these numbers are too small to justify any type of comparison like this. The reality is that hotels are generally very safe, and so are short-term home rentals. So what's the takeaway? How do you make sure that people are safe when they're renting your house? Well, it's all the things we've been talking about. It's making sure that you have smoke and carbon monoxide detectors in all the right locations, and that they're functioning, and ideally that they're interconnected. So nowadays, you can get smoke detectors that can interconnect wirelessly. We put some Nest smoke detectors in our house here. These are, in our house, they were actually battery units. They have a 10-year lifespan, which I believe meets the code requirements here in Maine. So you don't have to replace batteries. And then they interconnect with each other wirelessly, both over the home's Wi-Fi, as well as directly to each other using Bluetooth, which means that if a smoke detector in one room goes off, that they all go off. And these actually talk to you and will tell you if it's a fire or if it's carbon monoxide. So for any short-term rental host, even if you have existing smoke detectors, I'd recommend upgrading to some of these newer ones, at least making sure that they're interconnected and that you don't have to change batteries on them every six months. Yeah, it's interesting. There's kind of a side benefit here that when you're setting up your house for other people to live in it, you actually end up with a safer house for your own family. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, I would, I would do this in any house I move into, <laughs> frankly. And, you know, another thing that that we like about the Nest smoke detectors, and there are other brands that do the same thing, but the Nest ones connect to an app over the internet. So if the smoke detectors go off, it notifies my wife and I on our phones. And so even if we're not home, we'll know if the smoke detectors are going off. This does happen almost without fail around 8.30 on Sunday mornings 
when people wake up in the morning and start cooking bacon. <laughs> <laughs> and one more point on the smoke detectors. You want to make sure you have them in the right locations. You should have at a minimum one in every bedroom and one on every floor level. And you should check your local regulations to see if there are other requirements beyond that. So beyond smoke detectors, you should provide fire extinguishers in your house. There should be a fire extinguisher on each floor in readily accessible locations. Don't get the silly little ones that go under your kitchen cabinet. It's, it's fine to have one of those as a supplement, but you should have one of the bigger ones on each floor in an accessible location. And you should in your, if you have a guidebook for your home, you should notify people clearly of where those fire extinguishers are located. You also want to provide emergency contact information. So your local 911 numbers, numbers for the fire department, police department. And it's also good to provide first aid kits. So if somebody hurts himself, at least they have some basic first aid stuff that they can get to. Assuaged! Fear number four, home rentals are not in compliance with local building codes. So of course, this concern stems directly from the safety concern. And I want to say before we get into this, I'm going to give some of my personal interpretations of building codes, but I don't mean this to be advice for me as an architect about the building codes. Anybody who's looking into these issues should consult with their local code officials or maybe a local architect to determine what regulations may or may not apply to them. There is some definition in standard building codes that comes into play here when we're thinking about transient occupancy of single-family dwellings. In Maine, the state fire marshal actually has a page on their website that's titled Bed and Breakfast Life Safety Requirements. And they have a line there that says, and I'm quoting, you are allowed to rent to three outsiders without needing state approval. At two people per bed, that equals one bedroom. The second rental bedroom might include a fourth person. Okay, so what they're essentially saying there that if you're renting more than one bedroom, that they're saying you may need state approval as a change of use to a lodging or rooming house occupancy, which is a different classification in the life safety code than a single family dwelling unit. And the problem there is that a lodging and rooming occupancy requires sprinklers, it requires a, a commercial fire alarm system, it may require fire rated stairways. There are all these building requirements that come into play once your facility is classified as a lodging or rooming house. So what's really important here is understanding what is the definition of a one-family dwelling compared to a lodging or rooming house. So that statement about three outsiders, that comes from the NFPA. However, I think that their statement has misinterpreted this code requirement. So what the NFPA 101 Life Safety Code actually says is it defines a one-family dwelling as being occupied by members of a single family with not more than three outsiders, okay? So first of all, just looking at the basic math there, the minimum number of people that would be allowed would be four, not three, because you have one, which is the family, which could be one person, and then you have three outsiders. So one plus three equals four. So that would be whoa, the most- Whoa, 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 let me- Yeah, okay, that checks out. <laughs> it's always good to have an engineer to check an architect's math. But you can understand why they've misinterpreted this. They might be saying, well, the owner-occupant is the family, and if there are three other people coming in, then those are the three outsiders. However, the NFPA makes clear that this family in their definition can be a renter. It's not just the owner-occupant. So if we're applying this to short-term rental, the minimum that you should be looking at there is four people. Now, what the really tricky part here is defining what is a family. And the NFPA specifically says that they do not define what a family is. Heterosexual men and heterosexual women. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. You know, this sounds like at first glance, like they're just saying, oh, okay, you know, it's okay for, if, if you have three kids, you know, you're allowed to live in the house. This definition of family 
has really been at the heart of lawsuits that have come up about short-term rentals and about fire safety issues. There was a case in Portland, Maine, a few years back where there had been a fire in a building. And I don't know the specifics, but I believe that the building was being rented out with individual rooms. Um, It might have been like a halfway house kind of a thing. But one of the issues that came up during the court case was that the state was arguing that this place should have been renovated as a boarding house, essentially, which would have meant putting in sprinklers and all this other stuff. And it was not. And there was a fire and people died in it. And I think one of the arguments that the owner tried to make was that this building met the definition of a single family home because the people who were living there were acting as a family. This isn't defined in building codes, but family is defined in some land use ordinances. And a typical definition is it's a single housekeeping unit. So this isn't meant to be like a nuclear family or that everybody's related by blood. And in fact, definitions like that have been struck down in some courts because they go against some fair housing laws where people are living in some kind of a group home situation. This may happen a lot with people, especially with mental disabilities where they have a group home, but the people are all living together, they're cooking meals together, everybody's looking out for each other's well-being. So it gets really hard to apply this family definition to a single-family house and use that as a basis for regulating short-term rentals. My takeaway from all of this is that I think the intent here in NFPA is to allow for a broad definition of what can be a family and therefore what can be a single-family home even to the point of allowing individual rooms to be rented out to, as I said, three separate people who are not part of that family. However, I think at some point, this family definition uh, could be enforceable. As I mentioned in that Portland fire, um, it became an issue. And, you know, if you have a short-term rental where you've got 25 people showing up for a party, you're going to have a pretty hard time making a case that that's all one family operating as a single housekeeping unit especially if half of them are just coming to party and then leaving and not sleeping over. But surely a single-family house is allowed to have parties with a certain number of temporary guests. Yeah, and the code doesn't really address that. But obviously there should be some consideration to allowing people who are living in their home to have a bigger party from time to time. The problem you get into with short-term rentals is if that time to time ends up being every weekend in the summer. (laughs) For the entire weekend. (laughs) Right. You know, at some point, there's a frequency of those events that a reasonable person would look at and say, this is getting beyond the intent of the building code. It's difficult to actually put a number to the number of occupants that are allowed to occupy a single family home based on this family definition. But let's assume that there's some reasonable enforceable limit, you know, maybe it's eight people, 10 people, where after that, you start to look a little more closely at these occupants. Even if that were the case, the next point I've made here is that the number of occupants doesn't necessarily relate to the number of bedrooms. Or in other words, you can't look at a home and say, well, that's a two-family home. That means that there can be four people there, you know, and that means that it doesn't meet the definition of four people, you know, the most conservative definition of a family plus three guests, which is four people. There are many situations in the code where the classification of the building or the space depends on the actual use and occupancy rather than the spatial configuration. So for example, you could have a large room If it's occupied by less than 50 people, it's not considered an assembly space. But if you have an event where it's occupied by more than 50 people, then it could be classified as an assembly space. And there are a number of criteria which would need to be applied to it, um, such as having two exits. So it's kind of a minor point. But again, even if you were to put a number on a family or on the number of people who are allowed to occupy a single family home, 
you couldn't directly then say, well, then that limits the number of bedrooms that you could have or that the number of bedrooms somehow defines whether or not it meets its definition of single family home. And finally, the last point I want to make on this one is that even if you could do that, even if you could look at the number of bedrooms and the number of occupants and say that it's not complying with the code definition of a single family home, the NFPA doesn't distinguish between short-term and long-term occupancy of a single-family home within their definitions. When you're renting out more rooms to the point that the building does need to be classified as a lodging house or as a boarding house, the difference there is that a lodging house is more for long-term rentals, you know, over 30 days. Once you get to be classified as a lodging or boarding house, then a consideration of whether those occupants are transient or not comes into play, and there are some different criteria there for lodging or boarding houses. However, until you get to that point, as long as the building is still being classified as a single-family residence, there's no distinction in the code between whether it's a short-term or a long-term occupancy. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't change the use or the classification of the building. So the point here is that if the state fire marshal were going to enforce this definition that they have on their website, which again says that you're allowed to rent to three outsiders without needing state approval, and at two people per bed, that equals one bedroom, or the second rental bedroom might include a fourth person. So if the state fire marshal was going to enforce that, then if they're following NFPA, that wouldn't just apply to short-term rentals. It would apply to every home in the state of Maine, whether it's being occupied on a short-term basis or on a long-term basis. <laughs> so in other words, what they're saying is that every home in Maine with two or more bedrooms would need to get a change of use permit and you know install a sprinkler system, install a fire alarm system, have fire-rated exit stairs, all this other stuff. So clearly, this is not the intent of the NFPA code. Again, my interpretation is that the NFPA is allowing for a broad definition of what is defined as a single-family home. And I actually read an article on the NFPA website where somebody was asked about this, whether they were going to reconsider, and I don't, I don't remember who was quoted, but basically, someone who's involved in the organization basically said, no, you know, this family definition, it's been well-defined and it's been there for a long time, is not a new use, it's been around for a long time. And it doesn't seem like that's a definition that they feel is inadequate or unenforceable. I should also say briefly here that the NFPA is not the only code that applies to buildings. There's also the International Building Code and the International Residential Code, which are more of a nuts and bolts building code rather than the Life Safety Code, which is focused more on egress and fire protection requirements. And I won't get into this here, but basically in my reading of both the IBC and the IRC, Again, I don't see a distinction there between transient occupancy of a single-family home versus permanent or long-term occupancy of a single-family home. There is a statement where an owner-occupant is allowed to rent out up to five rooms to separate people, essentially, as a boarding house, and still have that be defined as a single-family home. And interestingly, Maine has actually changed that definition, I think, to try to bring it more in line with the NFPA limit on three people but they kind of botched it in the way that they amended it, and it's not carried consistently through the code. I don't think it's really enforceable here. So what I've done with all of this information on the building code is I actually did a little write-up where I quoted chapter and verse of some of these different code definitions, and I sent it off to the state fire marshal's office here in Maine, really just to try to get some clarification on this statement that they had on their website. And then I did actually follow up with a phone call to them and spoke to and had a good conversation with the assistant state fire marshal, who is, I think, in charge of plan review. And what he said is that that website statement saying that if you have a second bedroom, you could be renting to a fourth person, and then that might need to change the use. 
he said that that's really just to raise awareness for people that this could be an issue, to draw their attention essentially to this NFPA definition of a family plus three outsiders. He said that that's not something that they're actively enforcing. And we actually had a really good, you know, philosophical conversation about this definition of family and all these things that we've just been discussing. Because as I said, he had told me about this case in Portland where this definition of family became a critical issue. And so I came away from that discussion understanding that, that their office really has a, a nuanced and I think correct definition and interpretation of these NFPA requirements, which I don't think is reflected well in that website statement. I did ask him to check his math on it, <laughs> again, that if they are looking at these numbers, that it would allow at least two bedrooms to be rented to four people within the NFPA code and not three. Just have him give me a call if he needs any help crunching those numbers. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so hopefully they'll correct that, or, or hopefully at least that definition isn't something... Here's my concern. My concern isn't so much that the state fire marshal is going to go start going around at single-family homes and... <laughs> and, you know, giving them cease and desist orders or, or pulling their occupancy permit or something. My concern is that towns are going to look to this definition and then start to incorporate that definition into their own land use regulations uh, related to short-term rentals. Some of the points I'm responding to here, I had found a letter that was submitted to the, the state Senate in Maine by the Maine Innkeepers Association, which is like the hotel industry lobby here in Maine. This was while I think the state was looking to pass some legislation that would restrict localities from outright banning short-term rentals. And we can argue about whether or not that approach is a good thing. But this letter was like a laundry list of all of these fears that I'm responding to here. Hmm. And one of the things that they brought up is that they directly quoted this line from the state fire marshal's website. And of course, they were using that to say, oh, look, these home rentals aren't safe. They're not complying with code. They're posing a danger to the people who are coming and renting there all of these other canards that we're trying to challenge here. So I'm hoping to set the record straight here, at least on that point, that there's nothing in the building code that limits the number of bedrooms, or even with any specificity, the number of occupants within a single family short-term home rental. So what's the takeaway here? Well, again, I think from an enforcement standpoint, it's just some reasonable limit on the number of people, or at least a frequency at which you have a large number of people using a single family residence. But it's difficult to actually put a number on that. What we do in our rental unit, we just have a two bed. So, so on Airbnb, we set a limit of no more than four people who can rent our home at a time, which again, in my mind, meets the most conservative definition of a family plus three outsiders uh, would be four unrelated people. So we've chosen to stick to that strict definition here because it makes sense for our house. Also, if you're only renting to four people, there's much less of a chance that you're going to have these wild parties and things. We have allowed it to be rented to more people upon special request. Typically, that would be if it is a family. For example, we might get people coming here for a wedding or they'll have a wedding party coming and maybe like the groom's party, you know, wants to get ready at our house before they go off to the ceremony. So in some of those situations, we have allowed a few more people to stay here. So do you mean that you limit it to four people at all times or just the number of people sleeping over? Again, if we've had people who said that they're going to have four or less people sleeping over. But then they want to have the, like the wedding party come and get ready during the day. And we've allowed that. We've also allowed, obviously, if people have more kids, you know, if there's a, if there's a family that has three kids, <laughs> yeah. we'll certainly allow that. And they just have to contact us before making the booking and let us know that that's what they want to do. And we can usually sort that out. We have had people who wanted like six people to come and stay, you know, for a girls night out or a bachelor party or something. And some of those we've turned down. 
I would say from an enforcement standpoint that if towns want to look at this NFPA family definition and try to enforce that in some way, that I think that they should stick to the language within the NFPA and not try to put a certain number on that or limit the number of bedrooms, because that's going to get them into a lot of other trouble with fair housing laws and, again, distinguishing between short-term and long-term occupancy of these single-family homes. Assuaged! Fear number five. Home rentals are not licensed and inspected as lodging places by the Department of Health and Human Services. So here, I'm going to briefly talk about Maine's regulations here, but obviously this is going to be different in other states. There are probably similar types of regulations in most states, but I'll just use Maine as the example here to explain how licensing laws might apply to short-term home rentals. So first of all, one point I want to make here is that For anybody who has ever said, you know, there ought to be a law or, well, why don't they just regulate X, Y, or Z? I don't think those people have ever actually read an actual law or an actual regulation and tried to work through it and apply it to a business or an activity or something that they're engaged in. Because what you find very quickly in these things is that it is a hot mess of contradictions and vagaries that is almost impossible to navigate and I would imagine would be even more difficult to enforce. What it does do is allow people to enforce the law arbitrarily by cherry-picking certain clauses from these laws. Yeah, I think that that's certainly one result of this. But what also happens is that these laws are established by the legislature, but then the enforcement falls to any number of agencies within the government. So the Department of Health and Human Services is a state department, and then under them there's probably some division of you know lodging and rooming or something like that that enforces these regulations for hotels and rentals. However, these agencies aren't just enforcing the laws as they're written. They take a law, which might be like, you know, 10 pages long, and then they write their own set of rules and regulations, which is like 100 pages long, (laughs) about all the specifics of how this industry is going to be regulated. And so that, of course, becomes another source of conflict with the original law itself. But it also gives a lot of power to this regulatory body, which is not elected, and which has very close relations with the industry that it is seeking to regulate. So in other words, let's say this hotel lobby that I just mentioned. Let's say they want to get something changed within the hotel regulations. They don't necessarily need to go to the state house in Maine and get a bunch of legislators to, you know, introduce a bill and and pass a law and have public hearings and change all this stuff. All they really need to do is to put pressure on this regulatory agency to change something in their rule book. And I'm sure that there's probably some public process in the way that that gets done. And maybe it's and maybe it's ultimately voted on by the legislature if they're making some significant changes. But it should be clear that this isn't like democracy in action here. You know, (laughs) this isn't like the voters getting together and, and considering some public policy or even their representatives. The representatives just put out some broad, almost like a mission statement within the letter of the law. And then these agencies define how that's actually going to be applied and enforced. And again, you could see where there's an opportunity for them to be heavily influenced by the industry that they're regulating. Yeah, it's what economists call public choice theory, where you have a small special interest group that stands to benefit from new regulations, while the cost of those regulations are diffuse and spread across the rest of the population. And so even if they do have some sort of public hearing process, the only people who are going to go to that public hearing process are people who are involved in this special interest group. And so there's an inherent bias in that process as to which way the regulation is going to go. 
So as I started trying to dig into the licensing requirements here in Maine, the first thing I find is that the definitions are all over the place. <laughs> so there are like three or four different titles within the state law that could apply to short-term rentals. So obviously there's, there's you know, economic regulation of innkeepers, victuallers, and lodging houses, where there they give a definition of an innkeeper, they give a definition of a lodging house. Did they define victualler? <laughs> I'm hoping that that doesn't apply to me, whatever that is. <laughs> it would be someone who serves victuals, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, we make pretty clear in our listing that we don't offer victuals in our rental. Didn't you say you leave out cookies? <laughs> you, sir, are a victualler. <laughs> and my guests are victims of victually. <laughs> <laughs> victims of your victualism? <laughs> victualism. So there they define a lodging house as a house where lodgings are rented to fewer than five lodgers. So that actually aligns well with the IBC code definition that I mentioned earlier. Under the licensure requirements, it says that the local officers may enact ordinances requiring lodging houses to be licensed. However, it's not saying that it is required. It's just saying that if a locality wants to require licensing of lodging houses, that they can. There's another chapter under food and drugs, campgrounds, recreational camps, youth camps, and eating establishments. So, of course, this, this should be the first place that most people are looking for a definition of a single-family home rental, right? <laughs> And here they define a cottage, which is a single structure where sleeping accommodations are furnished to the public as a business for a day, week, or month, but not for longer than an entire season, for temporary occupancy, for recreational purposes only, and not for permanent residency. So it looks like that applies strictly to seasonal rentals, which we do have a lot of here in Maine, where it's like a summer cottage that people are shutting down in the winter. That goes on further. There's the definition of vacation rental which says vacation rental means a residential property that is rented for vacation, leisure, or recreation purposes for a day, a week, or a month, and typically under 30 days, but not for more than an entire summer or winter season, to a person who has a place of permanent residence to which the person intends to return. So that seems to pretty well align with that cottage definition up above. And the reason that this is important is that there's an exception in this chapter that says a license is not required for vacation rentals. So it seems like in Maine, the intent here is that if you do have a summer home that you're renting out just during the summer season, that this is making clear that that's not something that requires a license from the Department of Health and Human Services. Then there's also a definition here for lodging place. And note that this is different than the lodging house, which was defined in the other chapter. So a lodging place as opposed to lodging house. Right. <laughs> and it's like these two titles in the law aren't aware that the other one exists, you know? Yeah. This one says lodging place means a building or structure or any part of a building or structure used, maintained, advertised, or held it to the public as a place where sleeping accommodations are furnished to the public for business purposes. This is broadly including, it says, hotels, motels, bed and breakfasts, and inns. And here it says lodging place includes a property under common management where four or more rooms, cottages, or condominium units are rented to the public. So again, in the other title, we had a definition saying that a lodging house it's a facility where rooms are rented to five or fewer lodgers. And here they're saying that a lodging place includes four or more rooms, cottages, or condominiums rented to the public. Okay, so if you're somebody who's just come in here and trying to look at the law and, and understand what applies, it's all over the place. And finally, we go to the next paragraph in that law. This is exceptions, which says private homes are not deemed or considered lodging places and subject to a license when not more than five rooms are let. Okay, so in the paragraph just before that, it said that if you have four or more rooms that it's defined as a lodging place, but here they're saying that if you're renting up to five rooms, it's accepted from requiring a license. 
And I know this is all pedantic, especially for people who aren't in Maine. But again, I just wanted to make the point here that it's not like you can just pick up a law book and see what's allowed and what isn't. I mean, this is all this is all subject to interpretation. It's contradictory. It's confusing. It's vague. So where we need to go from there is to look at the actual rules that have been established by the licensing board, by the, the Department of Health and Human Services agency that regulates lodging places. Now, here they have a different definition of lodging places. It's a little bit different. It says it means every building or structure or any part thereof used, maintained, or advertised or held out to the public as a place where sleeping accommodations are furnished to the public for business purposes. So that was similar to what we had in the previous definition. But then it says this term includes, but not by way of limitation, hotels, motels, guest homes, and cottages. So there they've added in guest homes and cottages to this definition of lodging place, which were not included in that definition within the law itself. So already this rule appears to be more restrictive than the enabling law, which it's based on. But then they say, for exceptions to this definition, please refer to Title 22 MRSA 2501, which is that exception in the campground section I mentioned up above. So this was that exception that said that private homes are not deemed or considered lodging places and subject to a license when not more than five rooms are let. Okay, so what they did here is they cut and paste that definition from the law to the point that they actually like cropped off one of the numbers. <laughs> I mean, it was literally like a cut and paste. Like a screen cap. <laughs> right, which is fair enough. You know, that's probably what they should be doing when they're setting their, their rules. But here's what they did. They cut and paste that, but then they changed the number five to a number three. <laughs> so when you read the rules, it says private homes shall not be deemed or considered lodging places and subject to a license where not more than three rooms are let huh. as opposed to five. So again, they've made their rule more restrictive than what the enabling law allows for. So if, if this were something they were ever going to enforce, I wonder if this three room limit would even hold up in court. But that's, you know, that's beyond me to say. But fair enough. It would appear to me that in Maine that this is a definition that they're going to enforce, is that if you're renting up to three rooms on a short-term basis, that you do not require a license as a hotel from the Department of Health and Human Services. In other words, that private home rentals with three bedrooms or less do not need to be licensed by the state. However, it would appear that if you're renting more than three bedrooms, that you may need to go ahead and get a license from the state. So the point to make here is that when the hotel lobbyists come in and say that private homes aren't complying with licensure laws, that's not true. Uh, they're not required to comply with licensure laws, at least up to three bedrooms. However, there probably are rental units out there that are renting more than four bedrooms at a time. And I would say that, again, I don't know if the state is enforcing this on single family home rentals, but if you're renting more than three bedrooms in Maine, you might want to take a look at this and see if you might need to apply for a license as a lodging place. Assuaged. Fear number six, home rentals are preparing and serving food or victuals without a license. Yes, fear of victuals has been a big concern uh, among the hotel industry lobby here. You got to stop victualizing your tenants. <laughs> yes, yes. They're, they're concerned that there's widespread victualization of tenants going on. That's just horrible. <laughs> yeah. So first of all, I, I want to make clear that our position at An Architecture Podcast is that there should be no victualization of short-term rental guests. We are we are anti-victuals. I have heard of people being victualized in their rental units, and even children have been victualized while renting short-term units. All right, so is this a concern that home rental hosts are preparing and serving food to their guests? 
I doubt this is happening in most home rentals. Even if it is, there are already licensing laws in place both at the state level and probably at most local levels specifically related to bed and breakfasts that would define and regulate the serving of food. And that's really separate from the issue of home rentals. So this is not something that really needs some kind of special consideration by local planning boards or even by the state. As far as I can tell, this is pretty clear cut to the extent that anything is in state law and in local land use ordinances. So I don't think a local planning board really needs to take any further measures to stop the spread of victualization. Assuaged! Fear number seven. Home rentals are not ADA or FHA compliant for accessibility for people with disabilities. The concern here is that hotels, when they are built, are required to provide a certain number of rooms and parking spaces and some other features within the building that are designed in a certain way to be accessible to people in wheelchairs and with other kinds of disabilities. These design requirements were codified mostly in the 1990s and then into the 2000s they were revised as part of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is a form of anti-discrimination legislation that looks at physical buildings as a potential form of discrimination against people with disabilities. In other words, if you have a building that someone in a wheelchair can't access, the Americans with Disabilities Act gives them a legal right to sue you on anti-discrimination grounds, saying that you're treating them unfairly or not giving them the same opportunity as other people to come into your business and use your facilities. So the question is, does this legislation and its associated design guidelines apply to the short-term rental of single-family homes? First of all, the physical access requirements of the ADA do not apply to single-family homes. So when you're building a new house, you're not required to put in an accessible bathroom with grab bars and wheelchair turning space and a roll-in shower or some of these other features. You don't have to do that in the single-family home. The ADA physical access requirements generally don't apply to multifamily residential projects, although there are some exceptions there like for publicly funded, government-funded, or government-owned housing. However, there's a separate piece of legislation called the Fair Housing Act, the FHA, which most people have probably heard of based on its home lending requirements and other anti-discrimination measures like saying that a landlord can't discriminate against the tenants he rents to based on race and religion and, and all of those protected classes. So the FHA does have physical access requirements. However, they only apply to buildings with four or more units, and they have some different and generally less onerous criteria than, than some of the ADA design requirements. So for example, if you have a large multifamily project, you need to provide a certain percentage of units that have physical access features like an entrance on grade or access by an elevator. But some of the other design features are less strict than the commercial ADA requirements. So for example, in a bathroom, you might not have to put in grab bars and accessible fixtures on day one, but some of these units would need to be adaptable, where if somebody was coming in with a disability, they would have the ability to swap out some fixtures or add some grab bars to make those spaces accessible. And so this would mean that you'd need the proper amount of space in a bathroom to allow a wheelchair to maneuver, among other things. Yep, that's part of it. And also even things like putting blocking in the wall so that you have something to attach a grab bar to. Mm. And then there are requirements like for kitchen cabinets. There are certain reach ranges that you want to have things working with. But again, all of that with the FHA only applies to, as I said, multifamily units with four or more units. And even in those units, it only applies for new construction or construction with substantial alterations. And there is some definition in those guidelines about what constitutes a substantial alteration. 
and when you need to make some of these changes to an existing building. So generally, single-family homes are not required to be built or to be renovated to comply with physical access requirements of the ADA or the FHA. And I should say quickly before we go on as a disclaimer that the ADA and the FHA, these are legal requirements. I'm not a lawyer. (laughs) We're not giving legal advice here on this show. As we said earlier with some of these things, if this is an issue you're looking into, you should consult with a local architect or with an attorney about some of these issues to understand what applies. So I'm not a lawyer, but I play one on Twitter. (laughs) Now, the tricky question with these accessibility issues is a question of whether or not the short-term home rental of a single-family home makes it a public accommodation. The ADA specifically regulates public accommodations along with some other categories, but that's really what separates commercial buildings from residential buildings in the ADA. They're saying that if you're building an office building or a shop or a restaurant or a hotel, that these buildings are providing public accommodations, they're providing services to the public, and therefore they need to comply with these accessibility requirements in order to not be considered discriminatory. So the question here is, does a short-term rental of a single-family home turn it into a public accommodation? Now, I could see someone making an argument on either side of this case. It's not very clear to me in the ADA of how this line should be drawn. But my understanding of this is that generally, rental agreements for single-family homes have been looked at as private contracts between two individuals, as opposed to a hotel that, you know, somebody can walk off the street, walk into the building, and request a room. That short-term rental of a single-family home is closer to like a landlord-tenant lease type of agreement, rather than some kind of a public service. And of course, even in a landlord agreement, there are still discrimination laws that apply. As I said, you can't discriminate on the basis of race or national origin or marital status or some of these other categories. However, if I sign a year lease with a tenant, as I understand it, there's nothing that requires me to upgrade the physical features in my building to provide physical access requirements for that tenant. Is there any legal precedent that specifically addresses short-term rentals with the ADA? I've found some writing on this referencing some cases that have, that have been challenged in court. It appears to me that the legal precedents that are out there tend to favor the interpretation I just gave, which is short-term rental of single-family homes are not required to meet the physical access requirements of the ADA as a public accommodation. It will be interesting moving forward to see if more cases come out challenging whether or not short-term rentals should be considered a public accommodation that's governed by the ADA. Yeah, we mentioned earlier these ghost hotels where it's basically a whole building with multiple units rented out over Airbnb. And I could see someone making a case that a situation like that would fall under one of these since you said earlier that a building with four or more units could require ADA compliance. Well, there's actually one case I found where there was an apartment building, you know, I guess some kind of condominium, where individual unit owners owned each of these apartments. However, they had a program set up where people could choose to rent that unit out through the building management, where the unit could be rented out as a short-term rental. In this case, they argued that this was, in fact, a public accommodation because they were actually defined within the documents for the building, the, you know, the condo documents, that this was how these things would be operating. There was one single entity that was managing the room reservations for all of these rooms. And so it was ruled that this was acting more, more like a hotel and that the building needed to comply with some of these accessibility requirements. But I think the fact that they had to get into that level of detail with that type of a building to make the case that the ADA applied to it. I think that suggests that they're not expecting that most residential units that are being rented short term would need to comply with these physical access requirements. And I guess these buildings would already be attracting those requirements 
just because of the fact that they have four or more units in them, regardless of whether it's a short-term or long-term use. I'm not sure how that would apply to this case, because again, those requirements only apply to new construction or substantial renovations or possibly a change of use. So there might have been a change of use argument here that the use of the building was being changed from a residential use to essentially a hotel or lodging use. And that might be how that would come into play. But even that, even if someone said that, well, yes, existing single family homes, you know, would need to comply with the ADA accessibility requirements. There are some limitations there for existing buildings. So in other words, when the ADA came out in, I think it was 1991, it wasn't like every business all of a sudden had to go back and put in ramps and elevators and redesign their bathrooms on that day. <laughs> there are some requirements for businesses to make changes that are readily achievable, which is the language they use. And that might mean something like changing out a doorknob to an accessible lever, you know, that's easier to grab. There are some minor types of improvements that business owners are required to do on existing buildings. But beyond that, you're really not triggered into adding significant physical access features unless you're doing some more substantial renovations or unless you're, let's say, if you're renovating a bathroom, you need to upgrade each of the features within that bathroom. So if I go and replace a toilet, I would need to replace it with one that's at an accessible height. But just that might not require me to replace all of the other fixtures in the room or to make the room bigger or anything like that. So there is some nuance in the ADA in terms of how and when you need to upgrade existing features within existing buildings. So even if this were applied to short-term rental of single-family homes, which again, I don't think it does, that wouldn't mean that on day one, anybody providing a short-term rental would have to put in a ramp and a first-floor bathroom and all this other stuff to make their unit accessible. There may be a much lesser set of requirements that might apply. Well, I imagine that there's a market on Airbnb for houses and other units that do have accessible features. Yeah, on Airbnb, you can include accessibility features, and that's a searchable category within your listing. So for homes that are able to provide accessibility features, and this might be especially true for units within a multifamily building that already is served by an elevator and might have accessible parking out front, you are able to promote those features, and hopefully people who are looking for that would be able to find them on Airbnb. And given that in some cases, you can make more money with a short-term than a long-term rental, it seems like in places where there's high demand that people who do have accessible properties would be incentivized to list them on Airbnb, which would, of course, provide more options for people with disabilities. So to wrap this up, the bottom line here is that I don't believe the physical access requirements of the ADA and FHA apply to short-term rental of single-family homes. However, there does seem to be a market incentive for people to provide accessible units when they're able to do so. Assuaged! Fear number eight, home rentals do not have adequate insurance. This is a concern that homeowners policies typically exclude short-term rentals within their coverage. So in other words, if I have a typical homeowners policy for my house, and then I rent my house to somebody for a weekend, and the house burns down while they're there, my insurance might not cover me for that loss. They'll say that the policy excluded short-term rental, and therefore they're not going to pay for the loss of my house. And then, of course, a bigger issue is liability to my guests that if, again, if the house burns down while they're there, if my policy is excluding that, then they might not cover me for the injury or possibly loss of life to my guests. Now, this is accurate. Most typical homeowners policies do have exclusions for short-term rental. And my guess is that a lot of home rental hosts out there probably don't have the proper insurance, whether they know it or not. If somebody just decides they're going to throw their home up on Airbnb for a weekend to see if they can get somebody in there, 
they're probably not looking into their, their insurance requirements and making sure that they're adequately covered. Does Airbnb give any guidance on this? My understanding is that Airbnb actually provides a, I think it's a million dollar liability insurance policy for all of its hosts while they're renting the unit. And I don't know the details of this policy. Frankly, for me as a host, I'm not really relying on that. <laughs> insurance coverages can be pretty squirrely. And so for my wife and I, we, we wanted to get a more comprehensive policy that we knew would cover us in addition to whatever policy Airbnb might be offering. So at least for Airbnb, there does appear to be some liability insurance coverage for its hosts. But I would recommend that anybody who is a host should look into that and confirm if that's adequate before deciding to rely on that as opposed to a more comprehensive homeowner's policy. So is it a separate policy that you'd have to take out to cover the short-term rental use, or is it just a modification to your existing policy? Well, it, it depends a bit on how you're renting your unit. We ran into an issue where, as I understand it, you can get what's essentially a commercial insurance policy for like a vacation rental that you might be using yourself for some weekends and then renting out to other people. Again, that's an arrangement that has been around since time immemorial for people to have some second home and then to rent it out to other people at certain times during the summer. So there are vacation rental policies that would cover that kind of arrangement. The issue that my wife and I got into, as I said, is that we rent our primary residence as a short-term rental on certain weekends during the year. So if we got a vacation rental policy, it wouldn't cover us as a primary residence. However, our primary residence policy excludes short-term rentals. So we actually had a hard time finding a policy that would work for us that could cover us both as a primary residence as well as a short-term rental use. But insurance companies are starting to figure this out, that this is something that's going on and that they can offer coverage for. Since we had such a hard time finding this, I'll just tell you what company we're working with. So again, this is in New England. We're working with Liberty Mutual. They were the only company we were able to find in this area that offered coverage for short-term rentals for more than 30 days during the year. When we first started doing it, we were able to get some specialized policy through our insurance broker that allowed us up to 30 days, but we weren't finding much else that allowed us to rent for more than 30 days during the year. But we now have a policy, as I said, through Liberty Mutual that covers up to 180 days of short-term rental during the year. And that costs us probably about $1,000 more than a typical homeowner's policy to have that additional coverage. Per annum? Per year, yeah. <laughs> if someone's looking to rent your place on Airbnb, is there any way for them to know what sort of insurance coverage you've got? I mean, I guess if they were really concerned, they could reach out and ask. But again, Airbnb does provide that liability insurance. So that really Obviously, it's a benefit for the hosts, but I think the bigger reason for them doing that is that it does provide that level of security for the guests, that if something happens, then they should at least have some coverage from Airbnb's liability policy. And that makes sense because Airbnb, if, if you have some kind of a dispute with a renter in your unit, Airbnb has a mechanism where you can try to resolve that directly with them. And so you can imagine a situation where if somebody was injured in a unit, that you might be able to work directly through Airbnb to resolve that before taking it to the courts and, and even involving insurance. So for Airbnb, you know, they might decide in, in some certain case that it's worth their while to just pay the damages or, or if there is liability for the homeowner to assess that liability to the homeowner or the host and come to some agreement with both parties where the damages could be paid without involving insurance. And then that liability insurance becomes an additional layer if the dollar amounts get too big where they can then rely on that insurance coverage. I'll also say that, you know, as I've said, my wife and I are fairly conservative, or at least I am when it comes to insurance coverage. So we actually have a, a personal liability policy 
in addition to our homeowner's policy that would help us out if somebody did bring some kind of a claim against us. Now, I haven't looked this up, but my guess is that in Australia, there's probably some sort of legal requirement to have a certain level of coverage for short-term rental usage. But that's just because in Australia, that's just kind of how everything is. If it's not prohibited, it's mandatory. (laughs) (laughs) Right. My understanding is that there aren't any regulatory requirements for people to have a specific coverage for short-term rental. However, if you have a mortgage, your lender might require you to at least have homeowner's coverage. And if they're aware that you're doing short-term rentals, I could see mortgage companies starting to ask about that and starting to require appropriate insurance for short-term rental of homes. And on that note, I should say that if somebody is starting to turn their unit into a short-term rental, you're going to want to check the note on your mortgage and make sure that that's allowed. Generally, home loans for your primary residence require you to occupy the unit for at least, I think, the first year or maybe the first two years of that loan. And so you're going to want to make sure that by renting out your unit that you're not breaching some term of your mortgage note. But anyway, so there could be an incentive there from mortgage companies to require appropriate insurance for short-term rentals. But beyond that, I'm not aware of regulatory requirements, at least in my area, that would require people to purchase certain insurance products. Really, insurance is a, it's really a financial decision that each person needs to make of what types of insurance are appropriate for their situation and how they would pay for damages if they did have a claim against them. I think it's a pretty dumb decision not to have appropriate insurance, but ultimately that is a financial decision for each homeowner. And I don't really see a role for any regulatory agency in requiring people to buy certain types of financial products. It's funny because, like I said, in Australia, we have compulsory third-party liability insurance for cars. So when I pay my exorbitant registration fee for my car every year, in the same bill I have to pay for this compulsory third-party insurance policy. It's funny because we actually got pinged once for not renewing the car registration in time. And there's a whole story behind that, namely that they never sent us the renewal notice. Um, and then they sent us a nice ticket for a thousand bucks, which was like $500 fine for not registering the vehicle. And then another 500 for not having the compulsory third-party insurance. <laughs> so that's Australia for you. <laughs> but the point I'm trying to make here is that people do actually take out insurance policies even when they're not legally required to because it's simply a good choice to make, as you just said. And in the sort of ideal ANCAP society that we envision, various types of insurance play a big role in not only providing coverage for certain liabilities, but for incentivizing pro-social behaviors and choices that aim to reduce risks throughout the society. Yeah, or at least put a price on those risks. Right. Yeah, a lot of states in the U.S. have compulsory auto insurance, where you're required to purchase some minimal amount of liability coverage on your vehicle. I could see something like that getting foisted on us by regulators for short-term rentals. But the thing is, like even in long-term rental markets, you have the same issue. And I'm not aware of any requirements, at least around me, that require you to purchase insurance for a long-term tenant within your house. So really, if there were to be some kind of insurance requirement, it should probably just holistically address long-term and short-term tenants rather than just a short-term situation. But again, I don't think that's necessary. As we've seen, the market is responding and providing insurance options. As I mentioned, insurance companies are starting to provide short-term rental coverage options. They've had for a long time vacation rental coverage options. And now Airbnb, and I'm not sure about some of the other services, but at least Airbnb does provide a liability insurance policy for all of its hosts. Assuaged! Fear number nine, home rentals are not paying taxes 
I know, I know. This is unconscionable. Who do they think is going to build the roads? Well, there are a couple of issues here. The first is the income tax issue. So people might be renting their unit out and then not reporting that rental income on their tax returns at the end of the year. But with Airbnb and HomeAway and some of these other sites, they're actually tracking your earnings throughout the year. And at the end of the year, you can get a report from them that says what your gross earnings on the property were. So of course, it's still up to the individual to report that income, but that's no different than any other income generating activity, whether it's selling stuff on Craigslist or doing some odd jobs for people. I suppose if someone got audited, then the IRS might see that income and start asking about where it came from. And if they find out you have an Airbnb listing, I suppose they could probably try to get that information from Airbnb. But the point here is that Airbnb, by documenting all of the earnings you've had over the year on your rental unit, it makes it easier for you to comply and to report that income. And it also makes it something that's probably easier to audit. And if you think about the situation we had before Airbnb, where homeowners were renting out maybe a vacation home to individuals, either through a classified ad or, you know, as I said, a, a for rent sign stapled to the side of the building. A lot of those transactions are probably maybe cash transactions or personal check kind of transactions that would be a lot harder to keep track of and ultimately to audit. Now, another tax that people might worry about is lodging tax, which is essentially a form of sales tax. Not all states have this, but here in Maine, which is vacation land, which, as I said, has five times the national average of vacation homes per capita, Maine has a 9% lodging tax. Well, that's like a 10% discount on the 10% GST that we have here in Australia for every single thing you could possibly spend money on. <laughs> yeah. Well, over here, it seems pretty exorbitant, at least to me. But the question here is, all of these little home rentals, are they collecting and remitting this 9% lodging tax to the state of Maine? My guess is that for decades, there are many vacation home rentals who have not been collecting and, and paying this tax to the state of Maine. Frankly, it's a pain to set up the account. You have to do quarterly reporting. And at the end of the day, you're requiring your renters to pay 9% more than the value of the rental. So why would some little individual vacation home rental who's just picking up a few weekends over the summer, why would they go to all the trouble to do that? So my guess is that for decades, there are many home renters who haven't been collecting this tax. However, the state of Maine has negotiated with Airbnb some kind of arrangement where Airbnb actually collects and remits that 9% lodging tax directly to the state for every single reservation that somebody makes using their website. What? Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, so at least for the state of Maine, this really takes this issue off the table. And I know there are a handful of other states where Airbnb does this as well. So the bottom line there is that Airbnb has probably greatly increased tax compliance, at least with this lodging tax. And in addition to that, by increasing the number of home rentals throughout the state, my guess is that it's probably making a ton of money for the state through this lodging tax. See, that is what sounds to me like the one real downside of Airbnb is that it has actually increased tax compliance. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about this lodging tax, you know, we talk about taxation without representation, right? When you're taxing people who are coming from outside your state uh, to come and stay there, I mean, that's exactly what this is. This number could be 15%, 20%. And the people who are actually paying the tax would have no way to actually influence that tax rate. Yeah, I was in New Zealand on the day they changed the GST from 10% to 15%. <laughs> and on my hotel bill, they had it like, you know, Friday night was 
10% GST and then Saturday night was 15% GST. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it's one of these kinds of taxes that is viewed as as applying to everybody else, but not to the citizens. But of course, ultimately, that's, that is going to start to impact the local economy and the viability of the tourist economy. The final concern that people might have about home rentals paying taxes is local property taxes. Now, of course, this to me is kind of a non-issue. And in fact, it's actually improved by having short-term rentals. Because first of all, anybody who owns a home is paying the property tax. I mean, that the property tax gets assessed for the property, not to the resident who's living there. So short-term rental hosts are paying the same property tax as everybody else in town. The difference is that they don't have a permanent occupant within that unit. So when you think about where local taxes go, in most towns, a huge percentage of the local tax, maybe like between 30 and 50%, goes to the school system. So if you have a property that doesn't have a permanent resident in it, they're not going to be putting kids in school and burdening that school system. And probably over time, those units would be placing less burden on other town services as well, just because, you know, they're probably sitting vacant half of the time. So property tax payment is really a non-issue for short-term rentals. And the reality is that every short-term rental unit probably reduces the burden on town services. Assuaged. Fear number 10. Home rentals are unfair competition to hotels. As I was researching all of these items, I came across a letter that was essentially a testimony by the Maine Innkeepers Association, which is a nice sounding word for the hotel industry lobby here in Maine. They had given this testimony to the state legislature at one point when the state was considering some kind of statewide legislation somehow related to short-term rentals. I don't know what it was. But a lot of these fears that we're putting out here, I think they touched on every single one of them in that letter. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's part of the reason I wanted to break this down this way, is that all of these arguments are the kind of arguments that the hotel industry is making to try to seek government regulatory protections for their industry and protect it from competition from homeowners who want to rent their homes out. It's funny that they call themselves the Innkeepers Association, because when I think of an inn, I think of something much smaller than a hotel, something a lot more like a bed and breakfast or something that you'd see on Airbnb. Yeah, right. It sounds like the kind of place where you'd be getting up in the morning and they'd be serving you victuals. <laughs> and there are a lot of small places like that around Maine, who I'm sure they represent. But of course, they are also representing the large hotel chains. So first of all, in my town, at least, uh, this would be a very strange argument to make. Because at the moment, there's a brand new 80-room chain hotel being built in my town. And honestly, I doubt if there are 80 home rental units in the entire town. So it'd be hard for someone to come in and say, yeah, they're driving these hotels out of business. And yet it makes sense for this chain to build this huge hotel within town. Sounds like you've got to expand your operations. (laughs) Yeah, well, this is kind of like the thing we talked about with Chuck Marone, where you end up with all of this de facto subsidization of that type of development where you have the strode running out to it and extensions of public utilities and burdens on the water and sewer system that is much more intense and costly than using existing homes for short-term rental. So I could make an argument that these types of hotels are actually getting unfairly subsidized through the infrastructure and town services. But the argument these guys are making is that they're required to have these licenses as a lodging place, to have inspections, to meet certain criteria within the building codes for safety. There's probably some financial fiduciary kind of things in there and even things like cleanliness and hygiene that are regulated by the state. And this goes back to the licensing requirements that we talked about earlier. So fundamentally, what they're arguing is that short-term rental hosts should have to get 
the same or similar types of licenses and inspections and building code requirements as hotels or possibly smaller inns. Now, I'm not going to justify the state licensing requirements as they stand. However, as, as we said earlier, it's pretty clear that they have excluded small short-term rentals of private homes. As I said, in Maine, that threshold is renting three bedrooms or less. Those units are excluded from these licensing and inspection requirements. So the question is, what's the difference then between those units and these larger facilities? Well, as we talked about with the building code issue, when you get to a larger facility, you're creating greater risk within that building. You get into longer egress paths. You get into spaces where there could be a fire in one room and somebody in another room or on a different floor might not know that's happening. So there are more intense requirements for fire alarms. With health and sanitation, you just have a lot more people coming through there. So you're going to want to make sure that there's a more robust system of managing your linens and keeping all those rooms clean. With a big building with multiple people who don't know each other, you can get into security issues. I think probably everybody has been in a hotel where they've heard some kind of domestic dispute going on outside in the hallway, <laughs> usually around one o'clock or two in the morning. Or even just some drunken louts. <laughs> right. So that's a concern for, for a hotel that you don't get in a single family short-term rental. And then again, a lot of hotels provide some kind of food service, whether it's just a continental breakfast or, you know, that waffle thing where you put the waffles in and flip it over. For self-victualization. <laughs> for self-victualization or possibly even room service, or a restaurant or cafe within the building. So with all of these things, you're starting to ramp up the intensity of those uses and the potential risk that some of those uses entail, whether it's a fire safety risk, as we talked about in building code issues, or whether it's food safety or health or hygiene. Or workplace safety for cleaners and other staff. Yeah, so there are all these issues when you have a bigger facility, you have employees, you have people just walking in off the street looking for a place to stay. There's a different and more intense set of concerns there that applies to hotels that generally do not apply to short-term rental of single-family homes. So that said, why would somebody want to open a hotel rather than a single-family home? Given all these burdens of licensing and inspection and building codes, why would somebody want to take that on? Well, of course, when you have a larger facility like that, there's a greater opportunity for profit. So hotel operators are taking on these certain risks, are subjecting themselves to the state's regulations with the hopes that by doing all of that, that this facility will be more profitable for them than buying up a bunch of single-family homes and renting them on a short-term basis. So in other words, the cost and burden of licensure should be taken into account by these operators when they start their business. One thing that really separates hotels from Airbnb is that it's a completely different experience for the guest. I've spent enough time in hotels to know that it's not an experience that I necessarily look forward to. It's a completely utilitarian experience. You know, just a place to dump your bags and spend the night sleeping and then try to be out of that room for as many hours of the day as you possibly can. But I've also stayed in situations similar to Airbnb where the house is a big part of the destination. Yeah, I like to say that a hotel is where you go while you are waiting to experience a place and a home rental is the experience of a place. <laughs> Everybody when they're traveling says they want to live like a local. You know, they want to experience a place the way that people actually live there. And short-term home rentals allow people to do that. My wife and I certainly experienced this while we were traveling in Europe and in the Caribbean. And when we stayed in people's homes, we really felt like we understood what it was like to live in that place and that we experienced those places in a much more authentic way than we would have if we had been in a hotel somewhere. To the point where when we stayed in Panama, as I talked about in episode 20, out of the 30 days that we stayed there, we went for most of that month without even having running water in our apartment. And that's maybe not an experience that a lot of people are looking forward to when they go to stay at a place. And it was certainly challenging while we were there. 
But at the end of the day, it's authentic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. At the end of the day, when we left, that's one of the experiences that we now look back upon as being one of the most authentic and really meaningful and memorable, certainly memorable experiences that we had while we were traveling. And as I mentioned in episode 20, that really opened my eyes to the way that the community there helps each other out and how they get by under these kinds of conditions. What home rentals do is they get you off of the strode, you know, they get you off of the highway interchange and they get you into the downtown areas and possibly the neighborhoods of these places so that you really can live like a local and feel like you're engaging in the community in a more meaningful way than if you're just parked in a hotel by the interstate. So it's certainly true that home rental hosts are competing with hotels, but we're competing fair and square. We're not breaking any laws or building codes. We're not avoiding licensure or taxes. We're not putting our guests in harm's way. We are providing a better product at a better price and better locations than hotels can. And if hotels want to compete with us, then they need to think about providing a better experience for their guests in better locations at a better price. They should spend less time groveling at the state house for monopolistic privileges and more time trying to think about how to make places that people actually want to stay at. So here I am, Assuaged. Fear number 11. Home rentals create nuisances. I just talked about how the hotel lobby has brought up all of these fears and their challenge to short-term rentals, but they're not the only ones. You also hear these kind of arguments being made by people within their towns and neighborhoods. But in my mind, other than possibly the affordability question, all of these other fears that people are putting out there are really trying to address what is their primary concern, which is that short-term home rentals in residential neighborhoods are creating noise and parking and other kinds of disruptions on their street. Frankly, of all of these fears we've been talking about, this to me is the only one that's actually legitimate. And I think it is legitimate. If you have a home in a residential neighborhood and 20 people show up, they have cars parked all up and down the street, they're outside partying until all hours of the morning, you know, they're, maybe they have a bonfire, maybe they're setting off fireworks. This is unquestionably a nuisance within that neighborhood. And for us as libertarians, we can look at this from a property rights perspective. Yes, it's true that a property owner and a rental host has the right to use their property as they see fit, which might include inviting other people onto their property. However, the limitation there is that they can't create nuisances that restrict the rights of property owners around them to use their property the way that they want to. So this is a place where libertarian theory has gotten into excruciating detail about how nuisances between adjacent properties can be mitigated. And we talked about this way back in episode three, specifically in the context of a noisy party. Right. So a home rental host, and they really have an obligation if they are inviting people onto their property as renters or just as house guests, they have an obligation to maintain that property in such a way that it's not going to create a nuisance for their neighbors. But the challenge here, of course, is defining what constitutes a nuisance and what is permissible in the typical use of a single family home. The first thing that people might point to when they're trying to address this is noise regulations. So many towns, including mine, have some kind of regulation that says something like, you know, after the hours of eight o'clock, you can't have a, a sound level of 55 decibels at the property line. That starts to create a mechanism or at least a rationale for enforcement of some kind of a noise violation, but it doesn't really get at the underlying issue. Noise violations are really tricky to define and to adjudicate because it really isn't an objective measurement like a decibel level. It's really something that's very subjective. It depends on the perception of the person who's making the complaint. Yeah, when we're designing a power station, there's usually noise limitations that we need to meet. And one thing that's often specified is that there's a big difference between what they call atonal noise, which would be something like white noise, and 
something that has more of a tonality where it might be like a hum or a or a high-pitched whine or something like that. So you can measure a level of 65 decibels at the boundary line across the full frequency spectrum, but still have certain frequencies that overpower others that are easier to perceive and are more of a nuisance than just a flat kind of white noise type of sound. Yeah, exactly. And I've had to deal with that on building projects where you might have an air handler on the roof where the neighbors are concerned about sound levels on their property from that piece of equipment. A couple of particular problems are, one is that you could have disruptions that are well below something like a 55 decibel threshold, but that could still be very disruptive to somebody in their home. Let's say you have a neighbor who's lying in bed at 11 o'clock at night, and there's a group of dudes hanging out at the property next door. You know, maybe they're not being loud, maybe they're not being disruptive, but they're just sitting down at the deck quoting Big Lebowski lines until two o'clock in the morning. (laughs) For some people, that would be really entertaining, but you could imagine that there might be some people for whom that would be viewed as a nuisance. Especially if they're getting the lines wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that aggression will not stand. (laughs) So the problem with noise violations is it's not just the volume or even the frequency or any kind of measurable disruption. Whether or not something is viewed as a nuisance is really much more dependent on the content and the context of that disruption. So what can we do about this? Opponents of short-term rentals, especially people who have been having these kind of issues on their streets, and at that meeting in my town I went to, there were some people who had what sounded like pretty legitimate complaints about a neighbor whose house was turning into a frat house every weekend of the summer. The knee-jerk reaction is to say, well, this is too disruptive. There's no way to control this or to enforce it. We just need to ban short-term rentals because that's the condition that's creating these party houses. However, if we look back on some of the things that we've been discussing, there are some existing limitations in place that could go a long way to addressing these kinds of disruptions. So for one thing, we talked about the building code, which says that single-family dwelling units can only be occupied by an individual or family and up to three outsiders. Now, as we said, there's a lot of gray area in that definition of family. However, I think that if this were to go to a court case, any kind of reasonable person would look at a party of 20 college kids and say that this is not a family, this is not a single housekeeping unit, that this does not comply with that definition of a single-family dwelling unit. But if it's an actual fraternity, then they're all brothers. (laughs) They're all bros. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as I said, this is gray area. I mean, there's no hard and fast threshold where you can say that if you have eight people, that's a family, but if you have 10 people, that's not a family. But at some point, depending on who's staying there, it's just not going to pass the smell test if this actually got brought to a court case. So the effect of that is that for people who understand and abide by that building code requirement, They shouldn't have 20 people staying at a single-family home and throwing a raging party. Another regulation we talked about was the hotel licensing requirements. As I said, in Maine, anybody who's renting four or more bedrooms is required to be licensed and inspected by the Department of Health and Human Services as a lodging place. So if someone has a big house where they're renting out six bedrooms or even five or four bedrooms, at least in Maine, it seems like they could be prosecuted for not complying with these hotel licensing requirements. And again, from a libertarian perspective, I'm not saying that this kind of state licensure is a good thing or is the best way to go about this. The point I'm making is that there is already existing legislation in place that can start to address the number of occupants within a rental unit. So if you have these limitations of renting out no more than three bedrooms, and it has to be to a single family with no more than three outsiders, that's going to constrain the number of people that you could reasonably have in a short-term rental unit without running afoul of these regulations. Again, it's not a specific number. But when you get to 8 or 10 or 12 adults in a unit, as the host, you're really putting yourself at risk of having some of these regulations enforced against you. 
By keeping the number of occupants within these reasonable ranges, it's not a guarantee that you're not going to have noise and nuisances, but it should minimize the frequency and intensity of these kinds of noise violations to neighboring properties. And you mentioned before that you've got house rules for your renters. So I'd imagine that this is addressed in there somewhere. Yeah, I mean, we certainly, obviously, we don't, we don't want to have parties at our house. <laughs> <laughs> we have neighbors and we don't want to get on the wrong side of them. So as I think I said earlier, we limit our home rental to four occupants. We have made rare exceptions for some larger families. Our first rule for our property is no parties. <laughs> and that's all it says. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't, we're not saying, you know, you can't have a noise level of 55 decibels at the property line. We're just saying no parties, whatever that means. And that's something that, you know, might be difficult for us to enforce, but it sets the tone for people coming in that it's something we're going to be paying attention to. And if there are any issues that we might go after them through Airbnb, which is going to cost them money and it's going to drop their reputation rating and affect their ability to rent Airbnbs in the future. If we had somebody who wanted to rent our house and we went on their profile and saw that they had complaints from three other Airbnb hosts that they had used their host as a party house, we're not going to rent to that guy. Yeah. You know? So Airbnb guests have an incentive here to treat both the property and the neighbors with respect when they're renting these units. Another issue which can also result from having a lot of occupants within one rental unit is parking. I've heard complaints from people in my town about some of these party houses where they have cars parked all up and down the street. Now, this is not strictly a property rights violation like noise is. However, the issue here is that where they're complaining about this parking is on public space. There's a public road out in front of their house where these cars are parking. So this, to me, is actually a pretty easy one to deal with. My town, in particular, has an excruciatingly detailed parking policy where they literally go through street by street and they talk about hours where people can park on the street for certain durations and whether they can park overnight or not. In the winter, when they're plowing, there's no on-street parking in a lot of areas in my town. And again, I'm not saying that's good or bad, but there are already existing regulations in place to deal with that. And that's something, unlike noise, that is pretty easy to enforce, where if there are a bunch of cars parked on the street, the cops can drive by or a neighbor can call, and they can come by and just ticket every single one of them. So what home rental hosts should do is make sure that their guests are aware of these parking restrictions and possibly even include language within their home rules that define those for their guests so that they know they're not allowed to park on the street or maybe they even limit the number of vehicles that they can have at the property. And if there are streets where parking is allowed on the street and it's becoming a problem for the neighbors, then they really need to sort that out with the owner of the street, which is often the city, rather than the individual property owner. In that case, the property owner and their guests aren't doing anything wrong by parking on the street. And if the town decides that that kind of parking is, you know, going against the residential character of that neighborhood, then that's something they can address separately that would not just affect short-term rental hosts, it would affect everybody on that street. That's one more reason to privatize, or as we like to say, destatalize that road so that the residents of that street can have an ownership stake in that public space asset. As we've discussed in some of our public space series, like episodes 13, 14, and 19, there may be an argument to be made that public spaces like city roads have established certain rights of public access and public use and possibly even public parking that even the city may not have a right to take away from residents. So from our perspective, this gets to be a much more complex kind of discussion in terms of how public space can and should be used. However, that's really beyond the scope of any discussion about short-term rentals. The fact that these renters are exercising a right to access what we believe is public space isn't any different than anybody else's potential use of that space. However, as we discussed in those episodes, we have tried to define mechanisms by which the rights and uses of public space can be better defined and managed without relying on government. 
Of course, this discussion of nuisances wouldn't be complete without us trying to offer some kind of a solution that doesn't involve government. And in fact, the solution that I'm going to talk about here, I think can work better than government enforcement for all of the reasons that we've just talked about, about the difficulty of defining objective criteria for enforcement of things like noise violations. So my proposed solution is for home rental hosts within a community to get together, or maybe it could even just be one person, and offer a kind of mediation service between hosts and neighbors. The idea here is that if someone's having a problem with a neighboring property, they could pick up the phone, or maybe it's a text message or an email or some kind of online form or something, and file a complaint with this mediation organization, where they would say there's this party going on next door, it's 11 o'clock at night, and they're being disruptive. And then this mediation organization could take that complaint, and you know they're not, they're not the police, they're not going to go and knock down the door and try to shut people up. But at the very least, they could, after the fact, bring that complaint to the rental host, who would then have the possibility of prosecuting that with the guests through Airbnb's uh, complaint mechanisms. And I should say that Airbnb actually does offer a neighbor complaint service. I don't know how effective it is, but I think that for people to trust this kind of a service, it really needs to be something more local, like the kind of thing I'm talking about. So have you started one of these near you? (laughs) Well, again, we haven't really had this discussion in my town yet, but whenever the next round of discussions comes up, I am going to put myself out there as someone who might be able to do this. And I'm not sure how formal that might be. But part of my thinking on this is that these kind of complaints are actually far and few between for home rentals. You know, there might be something like 60 home rental units in my town. And of those units, my guess is that there might be two or three that are getting these kind of complaints. So for one thing, it would be interesting to find out how much of an issue this really is. Because one thing that happens right now is that when you have a nuisance violation, a lot of neighbors don't want to call the cops. I mean, even if it's something that's bothering them, a lot of people realize that calling the cops to come and break up a situation is a pretty big deal. Obviously, as libertarians, we're aware of all kinds of situations where police show up and things go horribly wrong, where they start arresting people and they start getting into altercations with people and they're shooting dogs. There's all kinds of crazy stuff like that that happens when you start to escalate that situation and involve the police. But beyond that, a lot of neighbors really don't want to, they don't want to be the guy that dropped the dime on their next door neighbor, because even if they don't like the guy and even if they don't like this use of the property, they may fundamentally value having some basis of trust with that neighbor. So I see this kind of a mediation process as being a much softer type of enforcement step where you could bring the neighbor and the host to the table. And again, this could all be anonymous where the mediator is a go-between between these two parties, but it opens a line of communication between them to understand what the issue is, you know, how often this is happening, what's the frequency of these parties and these nuisances, and what can the host do to try to mitigate that? As I said earlier, if that host property is creating nuisances, then they have an obligation to mitigate that and to stop those kind of activities from happening in the future. This also creates an opportunity for the mediator to make both the host and the neighbor aware of some of the existing regulations that I've talked about, like the licensing requirement for four or more bedrooms or limiting the home to a family plus three outsiders. I might be the only home rental host in the country who's actually aware of these requirements at this point. (laughs) But hopefully uh, when this podcast episode goes viral, there'll be dozens of others. That will start to change. Yeah, we'll get the message out. (laughs) There are a couple of reasons why I think it makes sense for a group of home rental hosts to be getting together and trying to provide this kind of a service. One is that home rental hosts are probably more knowledgeable about some of these issues and some of the potential strategies for dealing with them than somebody in the town government might be. Many of us have figured out rules that we can put in place where we're not having parties at our house every weekend, and we've gone through the experience of vetting guests and making decisions about who we might want to have say in our place and why. 
home rental hosts should also be more motivated than others to try to maintain some kind of harmonious relationships between neighbors and home rental hosts within their town. That's especially true at this point in time where many towns are asking the question of whether they should just ban short-term rentals outright or put some other highly restrictive regulations on them like owner occupancy or limiting the number of units that people can own. So this type of thing might not put an end to all nuisances from short-term rentals. However, I think it would be a helpful service that could create a more open dialogue between neighbors and rental hosts that could be much more productive in trying to come to some kind of agreement about how those home rental hosts are going to manage their property so that it doesn't create nuisances for their neighbors. Assuaged! I think it's clear that short-term rentals are not going away anytime soon. It's a perfect example of a disruptive innovation in a market that hasn't really changed much since probably the Middle Ages, considering they still call themselves innkeepers. And victuallers. And victuallers. And the opposition to short-term rentals, you see a lot of the same kind of tactics that you see from NIMBY groups and other conservative-type groups that either have an interest in maintaining the status quo or simply fear the unknown and want to project their fears onto everybody else. Of all of these fears, I think the only one that's really legitimate is this concern about nuisances. I think all of these other fears have been thrown out there by people who ultimately really just want to avoid having these kinds of disruptions in their neighborhoods. And I don't blame them for that. We've tried here to propose some kind of a solution to mediate complaints about nuisances between neighbors and their hosts that hopefully could work even better than some more heavy-handed regulation from the city that's relying on police for enforcement. So hopefully all of these fears have been assuaged. of Airbnb income in the summer, but not so much in the winter. So for most people, it probably makes more sense to rent it as a long-term rental. And if people are building ADUs as an, as an Airbnb kind of thing, they probably might do it for a couple of years and realize they can make more money as a long-term rental. We're adding that unit to the housing stock, and eventually it might be available um, as affordable housing. Tim, we're um, going to have to wrap up. Okay.